Hi, Eric. Thanks for joining. I'll just pop you up. Um, yeah, go British government. Well, the British government are doing the interviews. Uh, it's all thanks to the lovely Amanda here, who has been following this very, very closely and uh, has been sending us some really up-to-date information of what's happening at the core of all Omicron COVID-related stuff, which is South Africa. Um, <laughs> do you want to give us a bit of background, Amanda? Oh, you you actually, um, you you reinvigorated me, Money Penny. I was out of an earlier room and I was just about to close my eyes and you popped up on my WhatsApp. Um, yeah. So, yeah. We're, we're here in South Africa. We're getting quite decent, up-to-date hospital reports, if that makes sense. So um, those are freely available. Our president is COVID positive. Um, I've not had any responses to any of my questions about whether this actually is a SARS-CoV-2 variant. It's been crickets. Crickets. In fact, crickets are noisier than the professors have been these last few days. Um, and we're just asking them, is this actually a SARS-CoV-2 variant or is it another coronavirus, um, basically? And yeah, lots of interesting things, but we're still at level one. And tomorrow is reconciliation day for us. So effectively, the country goes on holiday from tomorrow and, and everyone pops off for their summer holidays. So your president um, is, and is desperately ill in a horrible emergency fear pandemic and you're all going on holiday. Ab absolutely. But apparently he's not desperately ill at all. Apparently it's very mild. Um, he's being treated, although I did ask the... Um, treating doctors what is the SA military protocol for early treatment for COVID and I've had crickets response to that as well um, and he seems to be able perfectly able to tweet every five minutes in the midst of his his illness and he's absolutely convinced the only reason it's minor is because he's he's vaccinated bless him bless him bless him. <laughs> that sounds extraordinary like Donald Trump tweeting from his bed yes all the way through his COVID death sentence Hmm. You'd think they'd learn from each other, hey? Yeah, maybe. Eric, how you doing, Eric? Come in, Eric. Um, hey. Hi. So, please, can you start pinging people in? Because I'm going to hit the button shortly, and I'm going to give you live access to an interview. Um, well, inquiry. It's quite a, an interesting inquiry where in the British government, we've got government ministers trying to get to the bottom of the COVID origin. And in doing so, they begin their interviews with the editor of The Lancet. Now, if you know me, you'll know I'm pretty much stapled to The Lancet and to Nature and to Cell and to all those medical journals. But if you know any history, The Lancet started to cause a lot of trouble at the beginning of the whole origin inquiry by publishing some letters um, that were later retracted uh, or amended and the Lancet itself failed to do the correct due diligence and what actually happened was a bit of a backfire on the Lancet. So they pull in the editor of the Lancet and then they then go to the authors of this book that I call my Bible 
that came out just in the last 10 days or so. And those are an American Chinese scientist, Alina Chan, and she is joining by live video from Boston, and Sir Matt Ridley, who is a highly esteemed British journalist known for his investigative capacity. And they've also been discussing it with a group that you may or may not have heard of called Drastic, D-R-A-S-T-I-C. If you know anything about the origin and the investigations into the origin and all the confusing messages and politics, you'll know that this group, Drastic, which is formed of basically maverick scientists and journalists who keep very, very secretive, they work quite undercover, but together have been responsible for pulling out an awful lot of information and much of it was fed to Alina Chan and Matt Ridley, the authors of the book Viral, who are about to be questioned by the British government in an inquiry circumstance with Alina Chan live from Boston and Sir Matt Ridley, the other co-author in London. So we are shortly going to start. I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes, please, to try and ping people in. Um, you're welcome to come up to the stage, but for the first uh, 30 minutes or so, we will be listening in. So sit back, get a glass of wine, a cup of coffee, whatever time of day it is. And we will be taking a little break now and then for questions, but I will be hitting the button. And it is going live from my laptop to this phone. <laughs> Uh, so apologies if you get any dog noises in the background because uh, my two little dogs are quite hungry. I'll go and feed them. Uh, <laughs> right, guys, get ready. We are just hitting the button now. Which was really quite revealing. Um, uh, what happened was the WHO investigation, which I think was important. So there was a lot of speculation about the um, validity or not of the laboratory leak hypothesis. WHO in May uh, passed a resolution to... Can I just check the volume on that? Can somebody on the stage let me know what was the volume like? Okay. Yeah, pretty good. Okay, brilliant. I'll get my laptop on full volume there for... Right, we're on 100%. Here we go. Welcome, Tammy. Just listening. To establish an independent investigatory team to go to Wuhan, to go to China, to try and understand what the possibilities were for the origins of the pandemic. And it took most of 2020 to put that team together, to get the team accepted by the Chinese authorities. And then they went to China in the early part of 2021, and they published their report in March. And in their report, they identified four possible pathways for how the pandemic could begin. And for the very first time, the laboratory leap was officially endorsed by WHO as a possible, um, as a possible pathway for how the virus got into the human population. And I think after that moment in March, where it got that official stamp of approval as a valid hypothesis, that opened the door um, for a much more, shall we say, transparent debate about what the scientific evidence was for and against the laboratory leak. I think until the WHO report in March, it was still highly speculative. Um, but after this visit that took place where the Wuhan laboratories were 
were assessed, where there were interviews taking place with Chinese officials and scientists. Um, I think that was a step change in the debate. And now, of course, you have phase two of the WHO investigation, which will be beginning very soon to try and go a level deeper to explore those four pathways. Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Mr. Horton. I'll turn to Aaron Bell and then Graham Street. Thank you, Chair. And thank you, Mr. Horton, for coming to us again. And I remember you coming to us early in the pandemic and you're obviously taking a strong interest. In, just, just for the record, you, you saying in your answer to the Chair that when you published that letter on the 18th of February, you had no knowledge of Dr. Dashek's links to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That's, that's absolutely correct, yeah. So thank you. And you said uh, in your uh, opening remarks about you know, the xenophobia and the anti-Chinese attacks and so on, and we all deplore that sort of thing, but that isn't the function of a scientific journal to, to combat that. The function of a scientific journal is presumably to illuminate the truth and, and try and get to you know, the, the true science behind things. So do you think that the publication of a letter was you know, served those ends, or did it serve to close down the scientific debate uh, prematurely? Well, let me take two, there are two elements to your question, if I might do sure. with each of them first. Firstly, on um, your, the first part, the, the goal of the letter, primarily, was to say we have a global pandemic, and the solution to a global pandemic lies in global cooperation. And that means that we should see the Chinese medical and scientific community as partners in this endeavor, rather than blaming them. And what was taking place in those early weeks and months um, was a bit of a blame game, which, which of course is still going on to some extent. And the purpose of the letter was to say, let's make common forms with our Chinese colleagues to try and get to the bottom of the origins of the pandemic. Now, in terms of the science impact, I, I'm certainly aware that that's been raised, but as I mentioned, the solution to understanding the outbreak in Wuhan lay in studying what took place in Wuhan. And the World Health Organization very quickly in the early months of 2020 put together this resolution that kick-started the process of their independent investigation. There was no slowing down of that process. There was no silencing of WHO. There was no silencing of the investigation team that went to um, that went to Wuhan. In this Mr. Horton, well, the, the, the WHO team that went to Wuhan weren't, weren't allowed full access, and they produced a report that was clearly, uh, you know, informed by as much as the Chinese allowed them to see. I mean, I, I applaud the idea of cooperating with China, but it's clear they haven't been open and straight with both the WHO and the wider scientific community throughout, isn't it? You're absolutely right. They were denied access to, some, to, to raw data that they deemed materially crucial to their investigation to elucidate which of the four possibilities was most likely to be true. But what they did was they, and this, this is not unimportant, and they wrote about this recently in Nature, um, they identified the laboratory leak hypothesis as a perfectly legitimate and valid hypothesis that needed to be tested and understood. And until that point, that, that idea had been denied by the Chinese government and denied by many others. That WHO team put it on the table and changed the terms of the debate. But uh, well, Mr. Horton, I mean, with respect, and I'll come to our other witnesses, but the fact that the virus originated in Wuhan, which has the Wuhan Institute of Virology there, makes a prima facie, you know, Bayesian case that it's a possibility of a lab leak in the first place. And our other witnesses who've written this book 
said that even at the beginning, they didn't necessarily believe it was a lab leak. It was just something that needed to be considered. Did you not believe it should have even been considered in January, February 2020? Have you had to wait for the WHO to say it should be considered for you to take that position? All we had in the early part of 2020 was nothing but speculation about the possibility of a laboratory leak. On the background of 20 years of understanding that many bat-related viruses had come through zoonotic infections. Um, and we published several commentaries in that early part of 2020 discussing the likelihood of a zoonotic um, infection. The theory was a wet market, not bats. Yes, but, but the intermediate host um, was proposed to be uh, one of the animals that could have been in the wet market. And if you look at Michael Warraby's work, and Dr. Chan signed a letter with David Roman and others, um, calling for more transparent investigations earlier this year in science. If you look at Michael Warraby's work, um, his, his conclusions, published most recently in, in science, are that the preponderance of cases in that market um, suggests that there was a critical event that took place there um, that, that would lend evidence to support the zoonosis, um, not a laboratory leak. Just briefly, for those that have joined the room, thank you for joining. This is Preservation of the Human Race. We're listening to the UK government doing an inquiry and questioning of the editor of The Lancet at this stage. They're moving on shortly to speak with the Chinese-American author, Alina Chan, and co-author, Sir Matt Ridley, of the book Viral. And you can see The Lancet are coming in for some stick because... They erroneously started publishing letters found to be from or related to Peter Danzak, which they accepted and published without doing correct due diligence. And as you can see, the gentleman who is the editor of The Lancet is currently going through quite a strict and unpleasant questioning. And we're going to continue with that. Um, thank you, Angela, for joining, Tammy. We we're going to be continuing. We'll be taking a break in a minute for questions. Uh, is the level okay, everybody? Cool. Okay, back to work. I absolutely agree with you that these questions still remain open and demand further investigation. You say they remain open, so you clearly think the lab leak is now a credible hypothesis. Would, would you go as far to say it's a like, the likely hypothesis? What, you know, what probability would you attach to that based on your, all the knowledge you've accumulated over this pandemic? I would agree with the WHO conclusion that it's a, it's a hypothesis that should be taken seriously and needs to be further investigated. But they believe that hypothesis is extremely unlikely compared with the possibility of a zoonotic infection through an intermediate host, which they deemed much more likely. And I think that was an entirely justifiable conclusion. And the evidence that we've had since then, at least to my reading, uh, supports that view that they expressed in March. Would you care to put a percentage on the probability of a lab leak? No, I would be happy to uh, agree with the WHO's view that it's extremely unlikely by comparison with a zoonotic infection. Thank you. If I could turn to our other witnesses, uh, Lord Ridley and Dr Chan. Um, thank, thank you for appearing before us. Dr Chan, what, what probability would you put on the possibility of there having been a lab leak uh, as, as the origin of COVID-19? 
Uh, you're a bit quiet. Um, you're on a muted or your microphone volume is very low, Dr. Shank. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, yes that's better. Thank you. All right. So I think that a lab origin is more likely than a natural origin at this point. We all agree that there was a critical event at the Spawn and Seafood Market that was a super spreader event caused by humans. There's no evidence pointing to a natural animal origin of the virus at that market. But before I get into that, I'd like to point out that the Lancet really needs to publish all of the manuscripts it received. Original, whether it was withdrawn or rejected by the journal, we need to see what you received from Chinese scientists in the early days of the pandemic. We know from Jeremy Ferrar's book that the Lancet was in possession of information on human-to-human -human transmission of this virus and pre-symptomatic transmission of this virus, and, and you did not release that to the world. This could have led to many more lives saved if it could have been released to the world. So I actually came prepared with five recommendations for journals when you're dealing with issues where withholding or sharing data can be measured in the numbers okay. of lives lost or saved. Okay, so, okay. I'm sure we can come on to them, but I think through questions from our members. Um, sure. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. I will, I will put that suggestion to uh, Mr. Horton later that you just made about the manuscript stockage. So you say more likely than not that it, it was on that lead. Um, yeah, how confident are you that we will be able to definitively determine the origins of COVID-19 over time? I'm very confident. We've seen from previous uh, cover-ups as well that it just takes time because right now it's not safe for people who know about the origin of this pandemic to come forward. So it might be five years from now, it might be 50 years from now. But we live in an era where there's so much data being collected and stored. Everyone has a phone, with cameras, with emails. Messages were flying out of Wuhan during the early days of pandemic. We need a credible, systematic investigation to collect all of these pieces of evidence and put them together to get a much better understanding of how this pandemic might have started. I'll turn to your co-author as well. Um, Lord Ridley, what, what percentage chance would you put on the, the COVID having originated as a lab leak? You're on mute. <clears throat> uh, like... Uh, uh... Dr. Chan, I, I don't like putting a number on it, but I also think that it's now more likely than not, because we have to face the fact that after uh, two months, we knew the origin of SARS through um, uh, markets. Uh, after a couple of months, we knew the origin of MERS through camels. Uh, in this case, after two years, we still haven't found a single uh, infected animal that could be the progenitor of this uh, pandemic. That's extremely surprising. 80,000 animals have been tested all across China. None were found in that market. Uh, and that was announced as early as May 2020. So you know, it, that was one of the things that got me uh, intrigued uh, in this possibility. And we do know of one animal that brought a closely related virus from a bat cave in southern Yunnan to specifically the city of Wuhan uh, in the years before this. And that animal is Homo sapiens uh, in the shape of scientists. Scientists were traveling thousands of miles to, um, uh, a thousand miles or more to, to Yunnan to collect SARS-like viruses there and bring them back for experiments uh, in Wuhan. So uh, to me, it does have to be taken seriously. And it was, it is regrettable that in 2020, uh, there was a pretty systematic attempt to, to shut down this topic. Uh, Mr. Horton says that the main purpose of that letter was to combat uh, anti-scientific, uh, sorry, anti-Chinese uh, uh, conversations. That can be done while discussing the origin of the pandemic. I mean, after all, uh, whether or not it came out of a market in China or whether or not it came out of a laboratory in China shouldn't affect 
um, the position of China uh, as the source of this uh, pandemic. Thank you. And I assume you both think it was an accident that it leaked from the lab. You do, but you're both nodding. Within that, Lord Ridley or, or, or Dr. Chan, whoever, do you think it's more or less likely that the virus was modified in the lab before it escaped, potentially through gain-of-function research? So, uh, if I can speak to that. So, we have heard from many top virologists that a genetically engineered origin of this virus is reasonable. So they say that it's worth investigating. And this includes virologists who have themselves made similar genetic modifications in the first SARS virus. So we know now that this virus has a very unique uh, feature called the furin cleavage site that makes it the pandemic pathogen it is. So without this feature, there's no way this virus would co be causing a pandemic. And only recently in September, did a proposal get leaked showing that scientists in the US from the Equal Health Alliance well, in collaboration with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, developing this pipeline for inserting novel furin cleavage sites, these genetic modifications, into novel SARS-like viruses in the lab. So what we have right now, as an analogy I use, is that you found these scientists who said in early 2018, I'm going to put horns on horses. And at the end of 2019, a unicorn shows up in their city. So it really is a striking coincidence that needs to be investigated. I'd say the burden is on scientists to show that their work did not result in the creation of SARS-CoV-2. Do you think, sorry, Dr. Chan, you think more sure. likely than not that the virus was modified in the lab before it leaked? I'm saying it has to be investigated and we can investigate it because the Equal Health Alliance has these communications and documents with the Wuhan Institute of Virology that can tell us what, what was their thinking, what were the experiments they were considering, how did they come to write this proposal in 2018 saying that we're going to insert novel curing cleavage sites into novel cells like viruses in the lab? Thank you. And Laura, do you wanted to come in then? Yes, I just wanted to add that this goes back to something you were discussing in an earlier session, um, namely that that grant proposal to uh, the DARPA for, to, to do this work um, uh, had to be leaked. We didn't know about it otherwise. It's pretty extraordinary that this information that they had been working, that they were planning to do these experiments, which are absolutely critical to the story of this question, was not revealed by Dr. Dazak. He was the principal investigator on the grant application um, until it was leaked uh, a, a couple of months ago. Um, and, you know, just going back to the questions about Dr. Dazak's role in the Lancet letter, he not only was one of the co-authors, he orchestrated it. Again, we had to find that out from leaked emails. Uh, he um, said to his co-authors that it would not appear to be coming from him or his organisation. Um, and he remained on the Lancet Commission investigating the origin of COVID for uh, many months thereafter. So uh, th there has been a significant lack of transparency, not just from the Chinese authorities, uh, but from Western ones as well in this. And that does seem to be a, a huge problem in the context of your inquiry into the importance of scientific transparency. Thank you, Lord Ridley. And what would you describe as the benefits of determining the origins of COVID-19? And if it does prove to be a lab leak, what are the potential consequences both for science and Western science included in that and obviously for international relations? Well, I think that uh, we need to find out so that we can prevent the next pandemic. We need to know whether or not we, we should be tightening up uh, work in laboratories or whether we should be tightening up regulations relating to wildlife sales in markets. At the moment, we're really not doing either. 
We also need to know to deter bad actors who are watching this episode and thinking that unleashing a pandemic is something they could get away with and they'd get a, a pretty well Potemkin report from the World Health Organization uh, if, if it happened. Um, uh, as for the impact of finding out, if we did find out that this was a laboratory leak, obviously it would have huge implications. Uh, it, it, it would be important, I think, to um, distinguish the, you know, the enormous benefits that we do get out of biotechnology research um, uh, and uh, how much enormous good has come from that, including the vaccines that, that are helping us survive the pandemic, um, from the fact that one or two experiments seem to have been done. Whether or not this was the cause, we now know that experiments were being done at biosecurity level two in Wuhan that resulted in up to 10,000 times increases in infectivity in viruses, uh, or three or four times increases in lethality in, in humanized mice. These are, these are the kinds of experiments that will play into the hands of those who are critical of science and want to stop this kind of research. So the important thing is to stop doing experiments that are risky of this kind while continuing to do ones that are less risky. And for that, we need much greater transparency across the world about what kind of gain-of-function experiments are being done on viruses. I'll just pause there. So you've got a very British fellow explaining um, his understanding of what has uh, happened so far. Um, just for people that have joined the room, thank you for joining the preservation of the human race. This is Miss Moneypenny. Alongside me, I've got the very talented uh, crew that are also uh, bringing forth great insight and understanding, both of the science and the political side of what is a crucial question. So we have Amanda, Tammy, Angela, and Brandon, the spying elephant. Um, I've turned off the hands for the moment, just until we finish listening to this. There are another nine minutes, I think, to go. Um, do take notes by all means, but I have left on the replay function. And also you might see a pair of scissors. That is a cutting function, but once you press that, it cuts the previous 30 seconds and creates a, a little video with a picture of the room and allows you to share it on your social media. That's not a hint. Please get going, guys. We want it sharing. This is the room where we hear exactly what the COVID origin story is today. Under inquiry from the British government, our experts, including the editor of The Lancet and the co-authors of the explosive book, which has become my Bible and my right-hand person, which is called Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. I'm going to pin a link to that book so you can try and get hold of a copy. It's been on pre-order. I believe there are still copies available. Um, the Amazon.com site in the United States has copies with a red cover and in the UK, it has a white cover on Amazon.co.uk. I'm not getting any um, commission from this. I just think it's a fascinating book. It also includes an amazing timeline, which we might look at later at the back, where it goes through month by month and sometimes in more detail, the steps throughout 19, uh, 2019, 2020 and 2021 when the actual key events and key discoveries were made. So for anybody who is as intrigued as me 
as to what happened, this is a really vital session. So again, please ping in people if you're not already a member of the Preservation of the Human Race. Where have you been? This is the fastest growing club for many reasons on Clubhouse. Hit the little greenhouse at the top of the page and please cut 30 seconds of your choosing and share it across your social media, enticing other people to come in. As you know, Clubhouse is now free to join. You can download it uh, from both an Android phone, uh, iPhone, and also there are applications you can use if you're using a computer, either Windows or Mac. Um, you can use various different uh, uh, applications. Club Deck is one of the popular ones. That's Club Deck. Um, and there are others which I can't promote, but I'm sure if you look carefully, you'll find them. So for now, stay with me on Clubhouse and we are going to return to the parliament. But first of all, I'm just going to check with my moderators if there are any crucial questions before we go on. Anybody? Amanda, Tammy, Angela, and None here. All good. No. Brilliant. Right. Get your pen and paper and your listening ears on, and we will return to the final nine or ten minutes of the investigation by the British government into the origins of COVID. Thank you. I'll, if I could turn back to Mr. Horton and give you some right of reply to uh, some of the things that uh, other witnesses said. Uh, Dr. Chang challenged you to uh, publish all the manuscripts you received, including from Chinese institutions over the course of the pandemic. Are you, is, is the Lancet willing to do that, Mr. Horton? I'm not quite sure what that would uh, achieve. And normally the uh, usual practice is that the communications we have with authors are confidential. So I don't see the value of um, going back to all those authors and seeking their permission to um, request that they disclose that they submitted work to us. Well, if we're talking about the context of um, the February letter, I think we dealt with that directly. Um, if we're talking about the hypotheses that Dr. Chan and uh, Lord Ridley have raised about the lab leak hypothesis, they're entirely reasonable hypotheses which need to be further investigated. And I think the WHO team that has now been put together to go to Wuhan to continue those investigations, that's where we should be looking for answers. Right, thank you. And uh, Lord Ridley said that Peter Daschet remained on your, your, your commission on coronavirus for a very long period of time after you were presumably aware that he was extremely conflicted in writing that letter in the first place. Why was he allowed to remain on your commission? No, you're absolutely right. He did remain on the commission, um, but during the time... So we established the commission in the summer um, of 2020, and uh, it began its work towards the end of 2020. It's led by uh, Jeff Facts, based at Columbia. Um, and when the conflict of interest that Peter Bazak had became known to us um, and concerned to us, as we found out more, we raised this with him and the task force that we put together on COVID origins. You said it became, um, you said it became known to you very quickly after the letter because it was immediately the source of you know, media interest. That's true, but we weren't aware until we'd done our own investigations, the extent of that conflict. There had been a lot of discussion in social media 
um, and in the press about this, but we needed to know the details of exactly what, what his com alleged conflict was, um, and we were trying to get that information from him, um, and that proved to be difficult for several months. Um, when we eventually did get that information, and we raised it with him on the task force, um, then it became clear that that task force was um, not going to be able to pursue an independent inquiry into origins, and we disestablished it. So, so that's why you disestablished the task force. Um, I mean, it took 16 months for you to publish that addendum. And Dr. Chan has described that as too little too late, and I have to say I agree with her. Do, do you not think it's too little well, too late? I think I explained that in answer to the chair's earlier question. Um, when we went to Dr. Dazak to ask about this competing interest, we ended up having a, a dispute. With, 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 respect, with respect, Dr. Horton, we're in a fast-moving pandemic where trust in science is crucial. You can't take 16 months to resolve a basic conflict of interest that was apparent from the moment the letter was published. I completely agree that, that we needed to move fast, and we moved as fast as we could, given that this particular individual um, disagreed with us about the nature of his conflict of interest. We needed to get this information accurately described and for him to agree a text that described his relationships with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the Eco Health Alliance and the research on back coronaviruses. We eventually extracted that and published it in June, as you've already uh, described. Um, and I, I think that we, we did a good job of correcting I mean, when, when you appeared before us before, Dr. Horton, you, expre you, you expressed the need for things to move quickly in a pandemic. This has taken, seems to have taken far too long. I hope Dr. Dashak will be willing to come and give evidence to this committee in future so he can explain for himself why he delayed your uh, inquiry into his conflict of interest for so long, it took 16 months. Um, but anyway, I'll leave it there and return to the team. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Graham Stringer, then Rebecca Longbaby. Uh, <coughs> Matt, thanks uh, for going this morning. Uh, I've read most of the reviews of yours and Dr. Chan's uh, book, and I've not finished the book uh, yet, but I've read parts of it. The reviews say, accuse you of stretching uh, facts and sensationalism. Uh, would you like to respond to that? Yes, we think that's a, a very odd characterization of our books. We've had good reviews too, I should. I hate to point out, but um, <laughs> I wasn't going to ask you to comment on the good reviews. Yes. <laughs> but uh, the, um, uh, the, we were very careful in this book to uh, never put anything in that we couldn't evidence to some degree. Uh, uh, I, every now and then, would write a paragraph of speculation saying, well, maybe they were doing this and that or something. And Alina would be very strict and say, sorry, that paragraph has to come out. We've got no evidence for it. So everything, you know, there's about a third of no, them, sorry, a fifth of the book consists of references. Um, we back up every statement we make. We give both hypotheses equal time. At the end, we have a chapter where we um, hand the microphone, as it were, to a, a lawyer to make the case to the jury that it was the market where it began. Um, and I find that chapter quite persuasive when I reread it. Uh, and we then hand the microphone to a lawyer to make the opposite case. And again, I find that quite persuasive. So we think we're very fair on both hypotheses. And the one thing we don't do is go into speculation about bioweapons, about um, the political aspects of things. Just to give a specific example, there is a 
report from inside the U.S. intelligence community that three of the first cases were workers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology who got sick in November 2019 with symptoms very like COVID-19. And there's some very specific details attaching to that. We mention that, but say quite clearly that because we don't have security level clearance, we can't check that whether that's true or not. Um, so we're, we're very clear what we can confirm, what we can't. Uh, and actually, the book is rigorously factual and the very opposite of uh, sensationalist. If um, the scientific debate had been operating in the way I think all of us would wish, in an open, transparent, uh, quick, speedy way, would there have been any need to write this book? No, frankly. Uh, um, I think uh, the, the the motivation to write it that was driving Dr. Chan and me was the fact that it was very clear that we didn't know the answer to where this came from. And that was because of a lot of efforts to obscure details, you know, the changing of the names of viruses, the, the giving of no reference to where, where it was found, things like that, right at the beginning. Uh, so that it took several months to uncover the the source of RATG13, the most closely related virus at that time, to uh, SARS-CoV-2. All of these um, uh, obscurings were, I think, a red rag to our bull. We wanted to try and find out what was going on. Um, uh, and we'd much rather be in a situation where it had become very clear very early on what and people had been invited in to investigate all of the details and rule out the laboratory, rule out the market, whichever. You know, there's a database at the Wuhan Institute of Virology with 22,000 entries in it, uh, 15,000 of them relate to viruses from bats. Uh, it's been offline since before the pandemic. It was there to help prepare for pandemics. Which pandemic are they waiting for before they share it with the rest of the world? Quite a lot of the entries in it were... Um, relate to viruses that were collected with US government funding through the EcoHealth Alliance. Why don't they have access to that data? Again, going back to your earlier session about the importance of making data available. Dr. Chan, I've, I've read that um, co-authoring this book has led to some personal difficulties to you and, and, and threats. Is that the case? And if it is, can you tell us uh, what has happened? It is true that's the case, but I don't think that it's good to get into detail about this because it distracts from the matter at hand. So I'd rather spend the remaining time talking about why it's important to get those original manuscripts. Sorry, I, this is very important to me and actually should be the first priority of an investigation into the origin of COVID-19. So we know that lots of scientists inside of China were sending out information in the form of manuscripts in the early days of this pandemic, not just to the Lancet, but to many other prominent prestigious journals, some of whom the editors are here today. And so we need to see those. We need to know what scientists knew, what they were sharing in the beginning, before the gag order went down, before they started withdrawing their papers, before they started altering their papers. This will really help us to fill out the picture of what was happening. I, I appreciate uh, that, but part of science working is that science scientists have to have uh, freedom of thought and freedom of uh, movement. I mean, it, it seems to me from what I've read that there are attempts to restrict your uh, freedoms. Is that is that the case? 
I'd say that that is the case for a lot of scientists for handling COVID-19 issues. So this is so controversial that anything, like just masks, vaccines, whether the virus is airborne, even just very basic things like that, not to mention the origin of COVID-19, will result in threats coming at scientists. So it's it's unavoidable. I'm not saying that's right, but I I would say I, I don't, I'm not in a rare situation. <laughs> a lot of scientists have suffered a lot of abuse. Uh, but I'd say that in, in this situation, specifically that are potential career uh, effects. So for a scientist to come on and say something that the rest of the community doesn't want to talk about, that has condemned as a conspiracy theory since early 2020, that has said that anyone raising the possibility of a lab origin is anti-scientific, is racist, is a right-winger, that's crazy. This is a scientific problem, and it cannot become a policy where we can only investigate lab-based outbreaks in uh, white countries. Thank you. Um, Mr. Holden, I was surprised uh, at your answers to, to my colleague Aaron when you said that uh, once the World Health Organization had uh, said that the lovely theory was a possibility, then that in somehow validated uh, that hypothesis. Why? Do we need the World Health Organization, which is a highly political organization as well as uh, being a sort of a health organization? Why is that needed to validate a hypothesis? I think what it did was it was the, it was the result of the first independent investigation into what took place in Wuhan. For all of its imperfections, for all of its inability to get at raw material that it, it, it has said that it needs further access to, but it was the first time that an official independent investigation had put the laboratory leak hypothesis on the table. And up to that point, there had been a lot of debate, a lot of speculation about this, but I do think that was a turning point in placing that hypothesis as a serious contender with three others for further investigation. Um, and I just would like to, um, I, I do understand the, um, the charge that Chinese scientists might have been gagged in, in some of their discussions of this, but one of the letters that we published in September of, uh, of this year um, was from a group of Chinese scientists, in fact, including the president of the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences. Um, and that letter <coughs> said that although the, they, they argue that the laboratory leak hypothesis was extremely unlikely, but they don't 100% rule it out. Um, and they say that there needs to be international cooperation to properly understand the origins of the pandemic. So within the political constraints that the Chinese scientists live with, there is an acknowledgement that there's, there is an area of uncertainty here that needs to be investigated. Um, and that comes from some of the highest echelons within Chinese science. Um, and, and that's why the WHO phase two investigation then becomes so important. Uh, again, in answer to questions that Aaron has used, that you've had to trust uh, your contributors both on conflicts of interest. Was nothing learned about trust uh, in the Lancet from the experience with Wakefield and the MMR autism uh, hypothesis when it took 12 years to 
Well, I think that one of the lessons there was that we do need to have independent scrutiny when allegations of misconduct are made. There needs to be a proper due process where those investigations can take place. Um, so that's one of the lessons that we drew from that whole uh, case that you mentioned. Uh, I'm not sure how relevant it is to the Peter Dazak competing interest issue here. But it, it's, it's relevant in terms of how you assess uh, papers of, that are put forward or letters that are put forward to the Lancet, because you seem to say, well, we have to trust what's uh, put forward. This is from the beginning, probably because it is China and the political system has been an area of uh, controversy. So just to accept it on the basis of trust, uh, particularly given the, the trust you put into the Wakefield paper, I think is a, I, I think it requires some justification. No, I think your question is reasonable, um, given that Peter Dazak had those connections with uh, the Inter-Health Alliance and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, but as I say, um, the edifice of science, um, rightly or wrongly, um, does depend to a large degree on trust. When the papers are submitted to us for peer review, we take it on trust that the description of research that has been presented to us is an accurate description of what took place. We don't go back to that institution and check the raw data. We don't look at the primary records. We don't look at the case reports of randomized trials to make sure that all of those data are indeed true. We, we take it on trust that that information is correct. Um, now, if, if you're arguing that that is a step too far, that we should be investigating, uh, that, then that, that does require radical change in our publication system. Um, I hope that we have enough confidence overall in the institutions of science that we can agree that episodes of outright research fraud are relatively uncommon and don't require such a regulatory bureaucracy that would impede science um, and the speed with which science delivers important answers. So I have to jump in. Um, I think that there's too much trust and this trust is being exploited by sometimes bad actors. Uh, I'm sorry, I missed that, Dr. Chen. Just repeat what you said. I think that it, it's great that journals are so trusting, but sometimes in these times of crisis, these, this trust is being exploited by bad actors to shape the narrative, to shut down discourse, to send out fake data, to, to mislead people into thinking this doesn't spread amongst humans. Like, this is crazy. Like, we, we cannot trust everything in times of crisis. So I'm going to say that about the WHO as well. Let's be clear about how they decided whether the bad leak was likely or not. They went into a room where there were Chinese government officials, and they all asked the scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, did you do this? And they said, no, we didn't. And then they voted. They voted to see how likely you think this is in front of Chinese government officials. What do you think the response would be? Who would say that we think a lab leak is likely? So let's be clear, this was not a scientific process. Um, our inquiry is um, on the publication practices of journals and the, and the, uh, the way that scientific research is conducted. Um, and in this respect, The Lancet, of course, is an important scientific journal. And so um, we've got some questions relating uh, to the role 
of The Lancet as a scientific journal, uh, related to some of the questions that were asked to our earlier witness. So uh, welcome to Michael. I'm just going to give a quick reset of the room because there's uh, a lot more people in it, but not enough. So keep pinging people in. This is the uh, very, very short replay of something that happened in the last few hours, which is a live, basically a live interactive debate and inquiry by the British government into the origin of COVID-19. The people being questioned in this stage of the interview are predominantly the author of The Lancet, who just spoke, Mr. Horton, who is under an element of, I'll say, attack, um, because, in my opinion, it becomes more and more clear that The Lancet certainly did an awful lot to cover things up or not to release things that they were given many, many months before other people. And as Alina Chan, who is the American scientist who co-authored the book Viral with Lord Matt Ritley, the British uh, gentleman that's speaking, it is clear 16 months it took to find out or to obscure that Dan Zark from the EcoHealth Alliance, which was the company funded by Fauci, which then went on to fund all the labs and all the work that was done around the gain-of-function research and other bits we now know about. And yet, The Lancet seems to have had an awful lot of information from the Chinese scientists, which, as Alina Chan said, there was a sudden cut-off where they weren't allowed to share it and print it. And The Lancet could have done that because they had weeks to do it, and they did not. Michael, welcome to the stage. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm just catching up. I will keep Great. We'll make a continuation unless anyone else has got a question. Oh, yeah, I wanted to add something really quickly because I find that curious because um, I was watching this video and I can't remember what this doctor's name was, but he was talking about the, um, the approval process for um, these vaccines by the CDC. And he was saying that they one of their um, requirements is for... Um, local or domestic manufacturers need to be, um, their facilities need to be checked every five years, I believe it was. And if they're international, like in China, they need to be checked once every 12 years. And they were saying that there are no reports to say that they're, they checked anything in China. And one of the things that was noted was that if they do go to China, check it out, they can't go into facilities and uh, the facility manager will come out and answer any of their questions. So obviously there's an easy, there's an easy um, chance for them to yeah, and as Alina Chan just explained, when the committee sat around a table and had to say yes or no to the possibility that this was a lab leak and not connected to some animal running around a market, they actually had CCP Chinese guards present in that room when the question was asked of them. So as Alina Chan has said, with guards from China standing around a table, you did not have a great deal of freedom to answer that question. Eli, how are you? Hey, um, I'm good, how are you? Very good, thank you. We're just listening to a broadcast from the British government, which is an inquiry into the origin of COVID. And they are interviewing the editor of The Lancet, Mr. Horton, 
plus the co-authors of a book, Viral, Search for the Origin of COVID-19. And it is written jointly by American scientist Alina Chan and Lord Matt Ridley, formerly a very prestigious journalist from very many national newspapers, but in particular the Guardian Group. Okay, we're going to continue the broadcast. Witnesses and Rebecca Long Bailey is going to ask some of those. Thank you, and thank you all for speaking to us today. Um, my questions are to Richard. Um, firstly, what role is the Lancet currently playing in ensuring transparency in research? Thank you. Um, well, I think the uh, what we're trying to do in terms of broader issues of supporting research integrity, of which, of which transparency is a very important part, <laughs> stems from, for example, in the peer review process, we require review, we ask reviewers to review not just the paper, the five-page essay that you heard about earlier, uh, but also the protocol. Uh, that goes with the paper, which is, of course, a considerably larger document, together with the statistical analysis plan, so that there's a much fuller understanding of the nature of the study. Um, we, of course, have moved into the area of preprints, um, and we have our own preprint server um, that tries to encourage that early publication of work, and of course, that's been extremely important in the, uh, during the pandemic so that journals um, are, are not justifiably accused of sitting on work for a long period of time before it's in the public domain, so people can have access to an early version of it. Um, so that improves transparency. The whole open access movement, of course, has been extremely important in improving transparency, and certainly at the last, over the last few years, we've launched a range of open access journals to try and improve transparency um, and access to information. I think on the broader issue, this was important, this was raised, um, I think, by um, Ben earlier. Um, I do think that the methods of science um, have to some degree outstripped the way journals work. Um, because in the old days, I mean, going back 30 years or so, you could get published in a journal with a two by two uh, table, very simple epidemiology. Um, and that doesn't work in the same way now. You often have these very complex models, um, computational statistics, um, which are actually very difficult to reproduce. Um, and that's where journals, I think, do struggle um, to make that information transparent and where we have to work with institutions so that, that they provide that information independently of journals. I think in terms of, um, in terms of rigor, for us, the, the clinical journal, we're trying to publish studies, um, particularly in the clinical trial arena, um, which uh, don't suffer from high levels of random error. So large, simple trials can reduce the risk of mistakes. And if you go back again 20 years or so, many of the early studies, um, early randomized trials were often small, um, single center studies that raised many false positives, and we've tried to learn lessons from that. Thanks, that's really helpful. How easily can the data underpinning a research paper be made available on your platform? And, and how do you address there was a problem raised earlier about how peer review never takes place on the software that's used to collate a piece of research? How would you propose trying to overcome that in a journal? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a problem we're we're struggling with right now, um, and I don't I don't have a simple answer that I can give you because it's a it's a current challenge. Um, but let, let me give you, let me give you a very live example at the moment um, uh, with Omicron. So uh, last Friday, I was discussing with a particular modeling group in the United States um, how we could um, how we could model the and forecast the pandemic globally, um, factoring in Omicron. Um, and the answer to that question is that um, you've got to factor in uh, infection-related immunity, vaccine-mediated immunity, waning immunity, and the severity of the disease. And several of those areas we just simply have no data on. And I asked them, the person I was talking to, well, tell me the what are the mechanics of the model that you've got? How, how are you putting this model together? Um, and the complexity is just enormous because you've got 194 countries. Um, you're trying to get data from those countries on the extent of the pandemic, often subnational data. You're trying to put that into a computational model um, with the four variables that I've just mentioned, which are overlaid on Delta, which is has been the previous dominant variant. I mean, the complexity is enormous. And how do you make that transparent and reproducible for another independent research group? And I don't have an answer to that question because um, those data are not fully available to everybody to see. And I think all modern groups are struggling with this at the moment, making those data available for independent scrutiny and independent validation. So it's a, it's a struggle. And I think this is, this is my point that I made just a moment ago, that in a sense, science, particularly the modeling science, is outstripping um, some of the mechanisms we have for independent validation and transparency. Thank you, that's really helpful. Sorry, Dr. Chan. Can I quickly jump in? So scientific journals can do a lot to help research integrity. So I don't know why everyone here is running out of ideas, but I have some really good ones for you. So make preprints mandatory prior to submission. That way everyone can see it. Check that all data is deposited on international databases that cannot be altered by the submitters. Like we've seen this happen with COVID-19. Sequences were deleted off international databases. Journals can do this. You can just check it. So publish peer reviews. You can keep it anonymous, but make it open so that people can see if there's gatekeeping or bias. Refuse to publish papers when novel pathogen sequences have not been shared in databases for more than a year after discovery. So don't publish any more work where they're hiding pathogen sequences for years and years. Uh, incentivize replication studies, timely publication of submissions that correctly call out errors in papers. So these steps will immediately help the research community quickly see when there are errors in papers, when data is missing, when they're incorrect sample histories. Thank you, Dr. Chan. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Lee. Uh, perhaps, Mr. Horton, you might just give a response to some of those uh, suggestions um, that Dr. Chan has given. No, I think they're, they're extremely constructive suggestions. I mean, the world that I work in, which is um, medicine and global health, um, the issue about making all data available immediately on publication can be a little challenging because um, oftentimes data is provided by governments under confidentiality clauses to researchers, and it's not within the power of researchers to make those data um, publicly available. Um, so that can, that can, and we've run into problems with that in the past, where we 
um, had a request that an organization provide data um, for independent scrutiny by another research group, and the authors will tell us that they are um, contractually unable to share that information. So I think it's an aspiration, it's an ideal that we should certainly be working to, but the reality of, unfortunately, doing international collaborations is that there are sometimes contractual details that prevent that. Thank you. Is time for a very quick comment? Yeah, of course, sir. Uh, already. Just to give an example of, of the system working well in this case, uh, there was a paper published uh, which was submitted before the pandemic began, published after it began, by the EcoHealth Alliance, Latin et al. And it was a summary of 630 uh, coronaviruses that had been studied up to 2015 by the group. Mm. Now, what was interesting was that they uploaded all of the genome sequences, uh, well, the, the partial genome sequences, into an international genetic database. And this enabled two citizen scientists, Francisco Rivera and an anonymous person called Barbara Lelevant, to uh, identify in June of 2020 that there were eight viruses very closely related to SARS-CoV-2 within that sample that had been collected from the same site in Mojiang, where the most closely related one had come from, uh, and which were being held at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It took another six months before the existence of those eight viruses was confirmed by the Wuhan Institute of Virology in their addendum to the nature paper. So don't neglect the role that the, the importance of individual citizen scientists going out and doing the, 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 the dirty work of finding out what's in these databases. Thank you, Laurelia. It's a very good point. Um, this uh, committee uh, is followed by many citizen scientists uh, in the country, and, uh, and no doubt they will have done uh, that call to arms, um, which I'm sure the committee will endorse. Uh, just finally, from uh, from me on this point of uh, publication, before I turn finally to Catherine Fletcher, uh, my colleague, um, I don't know whether you heard um, Dr. Moylan in the previous session, uh, Mr. Horton, um, refer to publication practices, and um, she made a, an argument that I was surprised by, that a, the journals are as likely to publish um, confirmatory studies uh, as, as it were, sort of breaking news. Does that apply to the Lancet? And it's a stable of publications? Yes, I heard that. Um, I would, look, let's, let's take a very specific example. Um, so we had the opportunity to publish the very first AstraZeneca vaccine trial, I think in December 2020. Um, now, if we then receive the fifth randomized trial looking at the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, would we have published that in the Lancet? And the answer, honestly, is very unlikely. Um, the quite, what we are asking is, is the, is the paper asking and trying to answer the scientific or clinical question that is important. And if the if the and that means that it could be the first study, like the AstraZeneca paper, um, or let's say there's a there have been several papers. Let's say there have been several papers on AstraZeneca and they come to slightly different conclusions, or they've raised other questions, um, they maybe would have published a fifth trial if, this, if there was a scientific or clinical question that was important. But for a general medical journal, of course, we are making judgments all the time about what's important and what isn't important. 
Um, and to say that we're publishing absolutely everything that stands science, well, clearly we're not. Um, we have to make choices. You know, on the front of The Lancet, um, you know, we still have a print copy, amazingly. Um, it says that we're a newspaper, and we've been a newspaper for 200 years. We're just a very specialised newspaper. And just like newspapers have to choose what they think are the most important stories for their readership, so we are making judgments about what we think are the most important areas of science for our readers. Um, that requires judgment. Um, I hope we get it right most of the time. Sometimes we get it wrong, um, but that's what a journal does. We're not a we're not an electronic an electronic database that publishes everything. We are a journal with a specific community that we are trying to serve. So um, we do make judgments and we do make choices. Well, that, that would that conforms to my expectation. You've got to attract interest to uh, to your journal, which is why I was surprised by that piece of evidence. But do you recognise the, the the kind of structural problem that some of our earlier witnesses pointed to, that, that it may be socially beneficial, uh, if I could put it that way, uh, for people literally just to to reproduce and to, to validate uh, conclusions that someone else has drawn, and if the research design and the integrity behind it has all been, as we would hope, proper, then actually you wouldn't find anything terribly interesting per se, and that will put people off who, especially early career researchers, want to have some articles in prestigious journals. That, that, there's a structural problem there, isn't it? Uh, there, is, there is a problem, and I think what publishers are trying to do, I, I can speak really for the Lancet group of journals, we've got over 20 journals at the Lancet. I'm just so going to move on a bit from uh, publishing back to the virus. Mr. Horn. Yeah, no, thank you. It's a great question. Um, and I can tell you from the volume point of view, it was a huge, you know, everybody rightly told, and this is much more important, the, uh, the stress on the National Health Service um, in the past 18 months. Require social media to be available and free of use. And given we're talking about COVID-19, I, I might ask you to just, especially as we're slightly over time, just stick to the should was there a risk that COVID-19 research, especially in the early days, was obfuscated by volume? And does that special time perhaps make a special case to at least, even if we have to redact it, share the volume that you were receiving at that time and the source yeah. of the volume? Well, I, I mean, having lived through it, I can tell you we were certainly challenged by the volume, but I don't think we were obfuscated by the volume. Um, I think that our teams worked incredibly hard to try and sift out what was important and what was less important um, to publish. So uh, it was difficult, um, but I, I think for the most part, we did a pretty good job. Um, yeah, that's fair enough. Maybe I'd ask the same question of Dr. Chan or, or Lord Ridley. Dr. Chan. Yes, we've seen that happen. So when there are groups that are incentivized to pro promote a particular narrative, they, they can swarm the publication system. So one very clear example of this was the Pangolin Papers. So all of a sudden, <laughs> I remember, there were four Pangolin Papers just put online at once and published in prestigious journals. One was even solicited by a prestigious journal. Uh, so 
I'd say that that fueled the, the media and speculation and public speculation that this virus had come from a natural origin, from a pangolin. Meanwhile, there was a paper that showed that there was no pangolin or bat sold in the Wuhan market between 2017 and end of 2019. That was kept under peer review, rejected from a journal, not shared. And so there is a lot of power in these journals to withhold and obscure so, information, so whether intentionally or not. So Dr. Chan, is that the basis of your point, which is you need to know the full list, not just what got published? Yes, and that's why journals should mandate pre-printing before submission. Everything needs to be put openly before submission, not like the day that they are accepted or when they are revisioned. We want to see the original manuscripts. We want to see who wrote it, whether the data is available. That, that was a very interesting point you made in quite a long list. I hope you write that list to the committee. Um, yes, I, I, my note-taking wasn't to keep up, wasn't up to speed. Um, uh, Lord Ridley, uh, just uh, can we be obfuscated in our scientific endeavours? Well, can, can I address your first question about speed um, uh, before that, if that's all right? Um, the, 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 the pandemic did show that we could accelerate the scientific publishing process so as to get results out quickly. And the, the Zhu et al. paper that came out uh, preprint in January, but publication on the 3rd of February, I think it was, which was the first sequence of the, of the SARS-CoV-2 genome and a comparison with the nearest bat sequence. Very important to get it out, et cetera, et cetera. It had problems. It left out crucial bits of information, as we later found out. Um, but uh, the, the point was that correcting the bad information ought to have been as quick as the original publications. And that's where the system fell down. So we got lots of stuff rushed into print, which was then found to be inadequate. Pangolin papers is another good example. Dr. Chan wrote some very trenchant critiques of the Pangolin papers, the inadequacy of their data, the duplication of their, their work, and so on. And that got stuck in peer review for many months. So uh, I think what, what we need is for a conversation to happen within the scientific uh, literature much faster. Um, yes, somebody brushes something into print, but yes, a rebuttal. Uh, appears relatively quickly after that as well. That's what I'm saying. Thank you all for your time. I do mean it. Chair, thank you. Thank you very much, Luke. Just perhaps finally uh, to me to uh, Richard Horton, um, talking about um, speed and um, and the, the volume uh, of papers being produced. Uh, it hasn't um, escaped anyone's attention that uh, Omicron um, is a subject of intense national interest. Just describe to me what you're receiving in terms of research papers and how you're going about making decisions to uh, to, to print and to accept uh, papers uh, there. And given, we particularly know because of the, the speed of transition of this virus is, is thought to be very rapid, it, it underlines especially some of the points that my colleagues have been making about speed. So to, to tell us as the, uh, the editor-in-chief yeah. of the Lancet what you're doing about this. Okay, um, well, first of all, uh, in recent days, there have been some quite frightening numbers that have come out of modeling groups in the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, I understand that those numbers are the best that the groups can produce at the moment. But I also understand that there are critically important missing bits of information. And without the information, it's very, very difficult to have reliable forecast for likely numbers of infections and hospitalizations and deaths because we just don't have the information on severity. 
Now, um, I, we are in touch with groups in South Africa, which probably have some of the most reliable information at the moment about that. Um, we have seen some early data on severity. That information is being written up, um, and I hope that it will be submitted to, to us soon. Um, but we haven't received it at the moment. I expect that we'll be getting it within the next, I hope, one to two weeks. Um, let's say that that information is successfully reviewed and published, so that will then be perhaps in the next three to four weeks. They might pre present that as a preprint to Dr. Chan's point. Um, so we will have this information, I think, before the holiday, um, and then we can plug that into the models so that we'll have a much better estimate of where we stand with Omicron um, before the end of the year. But right now, um, we really don't have that rigorous and reliable information. And the, on the basis of the numbers that I've seen from South Africa so far, still they're relatively small numbers. Um, so again, they're going to come with an uncertainty interval, um, which should give us a little bit of pause. Um, before we um, confident. So this 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 policy at the moment of planning for the worst is hoping for the best. Um, I know it seems extreme, but based on the data that I've seen so far, um, that does seem quite a wise policy at the moment until we get better information. And reflecting on finally on what was um, said about uh, publishing the the whole volume of submissions that you've had for publication, given that. Even accepting papers as, as preprints involves a degree of uh, scrutiny analysis, which takes time. Um, have you considered? Will you consider publishing as a as a platform, as a as a web platform, if not obviously in physical form? Yeah. What do you receive over the days ahead, so that you referred to social media earlier? The you know, yeah. uh, the the armchair. Um, Scientists can at least yeah. see the, the data, even if they don't, they don't have no, deeper expertise. I understand. So, for, for uh, about a year or so now, we've had a preprint server. Um, and what we do when an author submits a paper to any of the Right. Uh, Mr. Lancet has not impressed me, I can tell you that. He just smacks of cover-up, but uh, maybe that's me. Uh, what does everybody else think? We've just come to the end of it, really, and there's going to be a bit of fist-bumping and elbow-bumping and sanctimonious whatever. Um, I love Alina Chan. Wow, did she shout out some of the things going wrong? Uh, yeah, feisty and definitely on the point. What does everybody else make of it? Were the Lancet part of a cover-up? waiting 16 months to uncover the news about Danzac or 16 months to make a connection between Danzac and EcoHealth Alliance. My God, every researcher that did that, they'd be dead in the water. <laughs> 16 months to find out who runs a company. No, surely not. I'm just uh, very curious, really. Um, but as Alina Chan said, on the board of The Lancet, the people that were deciding what got printed and what didn't, some of them were not Mr. Horton's friends, um, but perhaps a government and political influence, let's say. Um, and maybe this is one of the reasons we are so critical of the media. Um, was Mr. Horton given a big backhander? Was there a political restraint 
put on the Lancet and no doubt other papers? And how much is he personally to blame? We just don't know, do we? We just don't know. But we do know from Alina Chan, who has told us that lots and lots of Chinese scientific relevant papers about the original virus and its gene sequencing and its origin were given very early on in January to The Lancet and other journals, and they were never printed. They were never printed because, as she said, the walls came down. I wonder which walls those were. They came down and prevented those being published. What do you make? You know, I, I think that, like, The Lancet has some internal issues. I mean, they did have that big-ass um, retraction in regards to hydroxychloroquine, or was it ivermectin? And they took a while to print that out as well, you know? So who's who's paying them or who's forcing them, who's telling them to make this kind of research paper for being, like, one of the leading research publishers? Who really knows? But I feel like that's kind of curious. Yeah. Okay. We have opened up the hands so that you can join us on stage to come and take part in this fascinating debate. Uh, we invite you to speak. We love opinions. We love opinions that are based on facts and evidence. So if you're going to come in and tell us that it was actually Batman and Robin that invented this thing, that's great. But please bring some evidence of it because we want to see it. So make sure you listen carefully to what those on the stage have to say, because I think this is incredibly important. Um, finding out the origin, obviously learning a bit more about the Lancet being tantamount to covering up a lot of the important stuff is, is fascinating. But also I think the book Viral, from which Alina Chan and her co-author Lord Ridley were speaking today. Um, I'm going to pin it at the top, aren't I? I must get around to that. I'll do it now. It's worth a read. I'm going to give you some little excerpts from it later. And I'm also going to share with you something that Michael found earlier, uh, which is fascinating, that puts added emphasis and possibility on the lab leak theory all the way from Taiwan. Oh, we've got two Michaels. Which <laughs> You go first. You're, you flashed first. Oh, no, I was just going to say that a lot of times um, when there is like a, a leading authority, that leading authority has been uh, made by the like organizers or the like, like, for example, at CES, I'm just going to give you an example. Okay, there, there are awards that the Consumer Electronics Show, which isn't really a medical show, but it's just a consumer show. But, you know, they have these awards and the awards of course, are done by uh, people who want to win the awards in the industry. So it's the same people who are, are putting out the awards are basically giving the awards. That's what I learned because I was at that show for a couple of years. And and so like with the Lancet, all I can say is remember there was that study with the, um, was it the French study? And remember it was like the study was like not accurate. They found later. Do you remember what study I was talking about? The guy from Paris or something, and he he was um, coming up with something, and then they yeah, found she, it. Yeah, the Zulu one that published genetic code or partial genetic code, 
Mm-hmm. Is that the one? Yeah, I think and that was quite critical, quite crucial, because it came out very early. Because if you remember, it was 30th of January when the genine, genome sequencing was sort of shared globally. And I think the date he mentioned was 2nd of February when it was published. Um, but obviously, subsequently, we we were found that we didn't actually get the full story. Well, there was a study like that also, I think. Maybe it was the same one. There. I mean, it was just kind of called the famous Lancet study or the famous Lancet study. From there stemmed the banning of HCQ and ivermectin as well. There was a study that they, they were saying there were, it was inaccurate, like those those drugs. Yet, you know, people who headed associations who had used those drugs had said, claimed a lot of success. So at the same time, there were studies and they were telling you the narrative that you going to have to do a lockdown, you're going to have to do a vaccine the same time. And they were saying, follow the science. It was only going to be a two-week lockdown. It was going to be one vaccine. This all happened around the same time in that January period. Um, You know, people had this narrative. It was the same narrative all around the world, like a press release. They were just reading from some of the organizers and they pointed to the Lancet study, which was then proven not to be true. So the Lancet is crucial in the whole narrative. And just like you hear about the Australian, um, the lady who, one of, one of the premiers who stepped down because of corruption, just like you hear about Gavi and Big Pharma colluding and a lot of companies having exemptions. This is the kind of information that's, you know, on one on one level, there's information that's for one person or one group, and then there's misinformations, misinformation for the others. So, for example, like all the big pharma executives and CDC and NIH, Congress, in the states, those that don't have to take the vaccine because they're exempt, yet they're telling everyone else the directives to take the vaccine because it's supposedly good for you. So you don't get the virus. Uh, If you do get it, you don't die from the virus or you get a softer adverse effect. If you had not taken the vaccine, you'll die. And what we're finding is the numbers are now saying uh, that's different. There's increasing numbers of adverse effects right now. Jessica Rose and her data on, there's some more data coming out from her uh, about the adverse effects. You know, Steve Kirsch is big on that data analysis as well when it comes to things like bears and the adverse effects. And uh, so the Lancet was kind of the start of the whole narrative. So there's definitely, definitely a big uh, when you're talking about the origin of the story of COVID, the Lancet is right there because that was the first group that was pointed to for the studies. And if they're not with, if they're withholding information, definitely something went wrong. Can I say what went wrong? No, but it seems like, just like the Australian premier in that province, I can't remember Victoria, wherever that is, the lady who stepped down, and she was caught getting paid by big pharma to introduce the vaccines as mandates and the lockdowns. And then we see that all these other lockdowns and mandatory 
vaccine mandates were put through the whole world. And some people, it seems like were receiving payments, then it does make sense. Not in a good way. Thanks. Yeah, excellent, Michael. Amanda, are you there to comment on the statistics that were talked about? Amanda, are you around? Nope, not at the moment. Um, anybody else on the stage before I tell you a little bit about what Michael, um, sorry, Michael with the cap. Yeah, Amanda's back. Sorry, sorry, Manny Penny. Um, just run through that question for me. Um, the last part of this presentation first to focus on as a question, um, there was some blame and certainly reference to delay of data by the Lancet man saying he wouldn't be able to publish anything that would be even significant or notifiable on Omicron until almost the day of the holiday or Christmas Day, as some people know it, um, which ain't going to be too helpful because we're all going to be pinned down and masked up and probably tied up by them. Um, he was saying he was relying on the South African data. Uh, what do you think? You're in charge of South African data or one of the team that does South African data. What do you reckon? <laughs> um, and and it, it's almost in response to this situation that they've gone back to adding extra layers again, Money Penny, if that makes sense. So because I think they feel as if they've had their fingers burned by the the, the backlash from that um, letter right at the beginning, 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 they've gone back to adding extra layers again. And I remember thinking at the time when I was listening to this part, that's just going to add more time um, again. You're not going to be able to come out with a quick, quick response to that. Um, so, yeah, that was my feeling at the time that there's been a reaction, almost a reaction that's put them back at the beginning again. Um, uh, because of what happened with that initial letter um, and publishing with the gentleman who had the conflict of interest. I hope that helps. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty serious. Um, Microtronic, are you there? Mm, okay, I'll come. I am. Oh, Oops, sorry, I've been in deep research. Oh, so, good. We like that. Previous discussion. Are yeah, you happy well, that I share the article you found uh, we talked about and my further information about Taiwan? Uh, ooh, I'm I'm at a loss. I apologize. That's fine. I will read it out, and you will no doubt be um, made aware. So this is this is relevant because earlier today, um, and we've always got our team in the preservation of the human race on the research uh, pedestal because we just have amazing contacts that give us little tips, bits and help and little tip-offs that we go and follow. Um, and whilst we don't get more than a few hours to sleep, uh, we're a worldwide team across uh, the UK, the US, Canada, uh, Australia, um, right over into the Far East in um, Vietnam and areas like that. And as a team, we regularly on a, a back, uh, back channel uh, come across things we share and decide almost like a journalist team would what's exciting and what might we share in a room. And Michael found what seemed initially to be a fairly interesting but one-off article earlier today. And I'm going to read it to you. This is from the Taiwan News and it's headlined, Mouse bite infection in Taiwan makes Wuhan lab leak more credible, says CFR researcher. Uh, 
So Taiwan's case could fill in the gaps left by China's blocking of investigations, according to the Council on Foreign Relations. A senior researcher at the Washington-based think tank, the Council on Foreign Relations, has said the mouse bite transmission that occurred in Taiwan last week lends greater credibility to the theory that the coronavirus originally leaked from a lab in Wuhan. Taiwan's Central Epidemic Command Center concluded on Saturday, December 11th, that an assistant researcher had tested positive for the Delta variant of COVID after being bitten twice by mice in a high safety laboratory. That's a bit contradictory. Wasn't very safe if he got bitten. Um, moving swiftly on. Taiwan's health officials have not ruled out that cross-infection occurred when the rodent bit the researcher. If proven true, this could reinforce the Wuhan lab leak theory per think tank experts. If the lab worker is confirmed to have been infected at her workplace, then this will add credibility to the lab leak theory. Uh, Yazong Huang, a Chinese public health expert, told The Times. The case comes as we've reached an impasse on the origins probe, with no progress on establishing whether the outbreak was the result of a natural spillover from animals or a lab leak. The I've Wuhan been holding my tongue. It, yeah, it, can... it came from the lab, sure. Was it a leak? I think somebody bit the mouse. <laughs> right, we'll come back to Vampire Angela in a second. Um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the scene of the alleged initial outbreak has two locations. Um, now, basically, this goes on to say investigations by Western governments basically did bugger all. Um, and we're very excited to hear about the fact that Angela is now a vampire because she accused me of being a reptile. So I'm thinking we're getting even on this one, Angela. <laughs> I don't know. You went back to the reptile theory in another room. So <laughs> I was lost. I underplayed it. But the whole point about this story, the Taiwan mouse bite story, is that I then added some information to it, which Michael was unaware of, that I got from the viral book. Because having read most of it, somehow I retained a crucial piece of information. And that is that during the very early start of COVID in the back end of November, December 2019 through to early January 2020, Taiwan which, as you know, a lot of the citizens um, are related to or work with or friends or families or lovers of Chinese citizens use a, a chatter group communication called WeChat, which is like our WhatsApp. Highly popular. Pretty much 90 percent of the population seems to use it. And Taiwan started to get very suspicious about what was happening in Wuhan. They started to hear things in the same way a government would have uh, people that listen into conversations, uh, secret service people. Taiwan got wind of what was going on, all about the virus, all about the fact that people were getting very ill in Wuhan with it. The military games was coming along, people were getting ill. And Taiwan, first of all, approached China and basically said, what the hell is going on? We have enough information to prove that something is being held back, nothing. So Taiwan went direct to the WHO and Taiwan reported this to the WHO with evidence saying this is being suppressed. 
there is a virus with human to human transmission that the Chinese have not told you about that is already rife in Wuhan. And that was before December 2020. What did the WHO do? They ignored it. They totally ignored it. And do you know why, Money Penny? Because Taiwan is not recognized as a country independent from China because of the political strife. That's why they. Yep, we know where WHO's loyalty lies. Um, a couple tidbits there. One is Taiwan and Hong Kong both had, I guess you could call them spies in that community in Wuhan. So that's how they had communication. Second, did anybody know that Wuhan was the origination of the um, democracy, pro-democracy movement in China? No, I did not know that. But it there were some videos. Yeah, there were some videos about that. There, there was a there was a movement going yep. on there. But Money Penny found out that Pfizer. Oh yeah, Pfizer yeah, has huge. huge headquarters there. So a number of things I find out. Um, thank you for reminding me, Angela. Is whilst looking into the geography of Wuhan, because there was a little sort of map in the front of this book and it got me intrigued. And then somebody started to talk about vaccines. And in the book, it said alongside every virus that was made in gain of function and every variant that was made and every incorrect uh, viral variant that popped out, they would make a vaccine and put it alongside it on a shelf, so to speak, so that they had a vaccine alongside every mutation of every virus and variant they were playing with, with, with the bat genomes. And I thought, well, who would be making all these vaccines? Because th that's not the sort of thing that you would do there. So sure enough, I went to look at uh, Pfizer and uh, uh, other different websites, and I started to look at their corporate websites, and then I looked at the analyst reports on them, and then I looked at the increase in income that they were getting, and I saw a rocketing big spike in income on the Pfizer corporate reports relating to an R&D operation which was in Wuhan, which started three years ago from today, i.e. several months before the pandemic, but only just enough months to make sure it's settled there. And in fact, so they have their biggest R&D uh, capability in partnership with, which is I think why it's not so easy to find another big bio lake um, scientific organization, literally based about a hundred yards from the Wuhan Institute of Virology from the map, that is Pfizer's vaccine research and development capability in Wuhan. But it's not on any of their websites. Kind of, uh, yeah. Don't forget like, some of the big players who invested in that area, um, yeah, that actually ties into Fauci and Gates. There's something about that with uh, some money that went there. And a lot of the investors in Pfizer are from, you know, where. Yes, thank you for that. Um, Angela, anything else? Because I don't want you biting your tongue off if you're a vampire. <laughs> Tammy, you haven't spoken much yet. Would you like to contribute? Tammy, are you there? Yes, I would. Um, I'm having um, some audio problems. Can you hear me clearly? Yeah, you and your bird coming over cle clearly. 
Yeah, she's sorry. She's she comes with the territory. Um, so, I mean, I, I think as all of us can recognize, you can look and read all the articles you want. I think that some of these entities are paid by the pharmaceutical companies to publish what is beneficial, uh, you know, for the teams, whoever they may be. But I mean, at the end of the day, this will be debated probably for a long time to come. But as critical thinkers, we sort of look at this and look at that, and we look at the timelines and we look at the key players. And for me, I personally am not willing to erase the circumstantial evidence. Um, so I, I searched and searched for this congressional hearing. I don't even remember the guy's name, but I'm always watching these things. Um, but there's like a 99.98% chance that this came from a bat. So I can't find it. And literally, um, so many things have been scrubbed. But, you know, if you like take this back, um, it, I still cannot find concrete evidence that PCR tests can, without a doubt, differentiate influenza from C19, you know, and where's the evidence that C19 has been completely isolated? Where? And so I know I'm, I'm, I'm not saying there's nothing out there, but Michael, like, you know, you read these statistics yesterday, again, with influenza, whether it's strain A or B, and what the number difference was in the past few years, right? So, so, I mean, we can't deny. And so the thing is, I still cannot set aside from all of these debates and all of these, you know, people who are pulling the data. Well, as someone who wanted to go into, you know, as a database administrator or uh, data mining, data extraction, to give it meaningful use, all this terminology. Um, our data sets now, and, I, and I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there, appears globally, sucks. Like, we cannot even extract data and give it meaningful use and help people, really. So for me, again, Miss Moneypenny, I cannot set aside the fact that in September 2019, uh, the Institute of Virology in Wuhan, they immediately took down 220,000 data sets. That's questionable in itself, right? Given the circumstances. So yes. in the same yes. day, yes. the Chinese ministry, um, they put a contract up put out 106 million to replace the HVAC system at the Wuhan lab. So I just, when, when listening to that debate earlier, I'm, I'm thinking of all the circumstantial evidence that if you've been paying attention, you would, you would recognize, right? So go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just saying you're absolutely correct, but there is now uh, many different sources of definitive evidence uh, about 
um, the actual detailed uh, gene sequencing, the matching of the chimera and the, the, the different types of bat um, viruses, the use of the humanized mouse with the human ACE2 receptor injected into it. Um, I'm not going to go into it all. I have done uh, shows on it previously, but I would, um, you know, refer many people to <laughs> ideally Nature rather than The Lancet, although they are in both, plus the uh, journal called Virology, the journal called Cell, and in fact, this book, the viral book, um, because it does give you a lot of detail on it, but it also um, has been covered in an amazing Channel 4 documentary um, put out in the UK, which I'm going to play a short excerpt of, which uncovers and reveals to you the dirty Danzac conspiracy, the bonkers Barrick conspiracy, and far too much American involvement, but also potentially American-Chinese collaboration in this. And that's a scary thought. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I think I've thought that all along. And well, I mean, you know, if, if you've paid attention, you also know that the Bidens have a relationship with uh, China. But, but can my that, congressman sleeping? Let, let's go back to uh, when the Olympic Games started in Wuhan was locked down. There were you were know, 9000 athletes that arrived and the, the city was shut down, but hospitals were lit. And so Again, it's just, you know, out of what, under 300, I think it was around 280 something, around 220, came back to the U.S. really sick. And around that time, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but right around that same time, the World Economic Forum was occurring and uh, Gates was there, of course, but they were giving out plush toys shaped like a COVID before this was a thing. So... I mean, I guess I just can't escape and I cannot uh, dismiss this was a planned and orchestrated. I'm so chuffed, Tammy, that you listened to my lectures because, yes, you've got it all spot on in the same order as my last lecture. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, well, yeah, well and absolutely fascinating Penny, stuff. There was also the, uh, the gain-of-function research that they found that was tied into the labs, right? And the, some of those labs were, like, the Michael, lab in Wuhan. Michael, shush, if we can just hang on, because I'm about to play an excerpt Ooh. that is all about that. So Okay, sorry to, sorry to rain on your parade. <laughs> <laughs> I just want other people who haven't already heard about it to hear a bit of the background to make their own judgment before we effectively put our judgment on it. Does that make sense? Because we on the stage, we're all quite knowledgeable and into this, but I recognize <laughs> yeah. there are people in the audience. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, was, I wasn't be. judging, yeah. I was just saying, but anyway, I will land my plane and it's all yours. I have my umbrella on for you. So. Well, I haven't found my clip yet. So if yeah. you want to have a little chat without putting too much emphasis on okay. anything that we've yeah, I won't put too much emphasis on that, but, you know, I do, you know, don't forget what Rand Paul said and how he asked Fauci and, and, uh, and how that's been actually connected and, and, and proven. And I believe that's what Money Penny is going to find in the, in the recording. And also some of that funding, not only from the NIH, but um, Gates, you know, if you find out who the owner of the lab was, that's going to be very interesting. 
That's all I'm going to say, because I'm sure Money Penny is going to be ready any moment. And I hope Money Penny, one of these days, you read what I sent you in the back channel, especially the the last stuff about Taiwan. One of the articles I sent you actually does refer to Taiwan to that um, that information. Um, so yeah, that's all I'm going to say. Hopefully, you're ready. Yeah, I have read your message, Michael. Um, but I do need. If somebody could do a reset, that would be great. Angela, Michael, tell me. You're listening. I, I can do it for you, but you're you're here at the preservation of the human race. Hit the uh, hit the greenhouse on the top right on the top, and make sure you're a member, and invite other people to become a member, so they can find out about great conversations like this one. So I'm hitting a few people to invite myself. I'm just visiting today, but I am a member, and everybody also make sure you follow those moderators with the green beans on them, especially Money Penny, Amanda, Angela, Tammy, Michael with the cap, and Eli, who's great. It does a lot of research. It's awesome. And make sure that you hit the plus sign and invite people into the conversation to carry the momentum going on. So I'm doing that now. We, I mean, I'm doing maybe 10. You can do 20. You can do it up until the red bar. And that way you can invite more people into this conversation. And last but not least, you can tweet it. You can also hit the scissors when there's a recording, like when Money Petty's talking, and tweet that recording so it gets out to more people. Boom, thank you, Michael. And just as a little addition, thank you so much for that. Um, in this room, we only share things that are opinion-based, are something that we can provide documentation on. So in no way, shape or form, does the preservation of the human race provide medical, legal, financial, or spiritual advice? And with that, I hand Yeah, okay. So. There are an awful lot of videos and an awful lot of investigations that cover COVID origin. Um, the one I've selected is done by Channel 4, which is um, an independent news media network. Um, and normally they do very tough investigative stuff, um, but they take research from other national newspaper journalists and they bring it to light. Um, now this, you know, it's it's not, it didn't come out yesterday. It actually came out a few weeks ago. But for me, when I started watching it, it did give you a real insight into the key players. Um, because one of the things we want to know is how did it possibly originate through the lab leak or other theories, but also who should we blame or who should be made to face a court? Who should be made to face more questions? and give us the answers and then allow us to decide, and if we ever get the chance to decide, what should be done? If anything should be done, what should be done? It's very difficult to establish who is going to be telling us the truth, but I'm going to play this interview and let you decide. Hang on. Hey, Mike, while she's doing that, can you please uh, send me a link to your recent finding? Are you talking to me? Yes. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, there's two Michaels. Yes, I'm talking to you. This is Tammy. 
sorry about that. I've been in debate for about an hour and a half with this guy, the doctor that was in the other room, Angela. Uh, the one that came up wanted to know about hydrogel. Are you talking about Jeff? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I challenged him to a public debate, but we've been going back and forth, and he uh, it's, it's been very interesting. But I went down that road of uh, graphene oxide, hydrogel, PEG, and um, I had not done personally the research on that, so I've never spoke about it. As you know, Tammy, I've never said that. I've said that. I'm very curious and it's plausible and, and logical, but the research that I found is, uh, he actually, I, he made the case for me by me doing the research. So, um, basically what it amounted to is, um, Moderna and Pfizer won't release their proprietary ingredients in the proprietary ingredients is the peg. And if you look up what, what is in peg, graphene oxide is in peg. It's the main component of the delivery system. So, um, yeah, I learned that tonight. How about that? Yeah. Who told you that? Because I, I've been given a scientific understanding of something very different to that. That's just through my research um, on PubMed and reading. Uh, Forbes actually did a very nice article saying what's the mystery ingredient in Moderna. Uh which pointed me into all that research. Forbes? Yeah, believe it or not, Forbes. Hmm. Okay, because I'm, I, I'm in possession of... Oh, sorry. Right, found my video. Stop. I've, I'm in possession of research, um, which pretty definitively tells you that the graphene hydroxide, the graphene hydroxide is a component, not of the vaccine, but of the vial that is known as saline, which has to be used to dilute the vaccine before the vaccine is administered. And I know that from some leaked Pfizer emails that were questioning whether or not and how they should address the issue of so much uh, so-called conspiracy media asking and alleging that they had this graphene-based derivative in their product. And in the emails between two colleagues, which uh, have been verified on LinkedIn, these emails effectively explained what led me to look at the saline, which sure enough has its own paper on one of the medical journal sites explaining why graphene hydroxide is used in the saline dilutant, which is used with the vaccine. Isn't that splitting hairs, though, Money Penny? Since in essence, no, no. Well, but wait, no. The vaccines legally. aren't used without the saline, though. Ah, but can legally, I, can I, can I, le hang on, Tammy, please, Tammy, hang on. Legally, Pfizer do not produce or have legal authority or accountability for the dilutant. It is made by a separate company off-site. And that was the purpose of these emails, was to ensure that they did not, Pfizer did not take accountability by saying clearly that there was no graphene derivatives in 
the manufacturing process of the vaccine, but they were unable to clarify whether third-party suppliers may or may not have used that in the production of related supply events. Do you get me? I do, but I find it still to be um, duplicitous because if they're saying it has to be used in their product in order to be a fully viable product, okay, like as in you must mix vial B with vial A in order to inject an individual with our product. They're essentially saying that whatever's in that other vial is part of what's being injected. So I don't find, I mean, I'm sorry, if you went to a court of law and you said, nope, it's not our product. And they would say, so they could just take your product and inject it directly into the patient. Well, no, it has to be mixed. Could they take, you know, water from the sink and mix it? No. Could they take a bottle of pure saline? No. That's what we contracted to use. So that is part of their. Yeah, it's a clever way of them deflecting their legal responsibility. It's called I don't lies. Think it's, right for a it's not deflection. Yes, but everything else. Damn lies. Are we ready for the tape? Or Tammy, did you want to intervene first? I actually did. And if you PTR, um, when I started digging into the ingredients of these vaccines, and I looked at hydrogel specifically, and I kind of bounced in and out of that room earlier, Michael, that you're talking about. And I heard Jeff question hydrogel. And I also heard earlier um, Amanda speak of a little over a hundred uses for hydrogel and how it is used to uh, treat wounds. And I get it. But the one thing I found super interesting, and if you PTR and look at this photo, this is, um, it's basically a, kind of a hydrobot. And so it can within the body and treating wounds, I think is different. And Amanda, please correct me. Um, treating an external wound is different than injecting this product. So I'm sorry. I said a hundred percent. Right. And so uh, this will take, this will take all of 45 seconds, but all I wanted to share with you is this is from a 2018 study. Um, I have the reference to the scientific journal if you want, but this hydrogel structure, it, it has the capability of doing like, um, like a, a locomotion through a salt solution, which in your body I can see, right? And with that, it's pulsating from an electrical field, which again, is in your body or externally, who knows? It's an electric field. So the electroactive hydrogels, they swell and they shrink uh, with concentration and, um, you know, they adapt to the changes. So researchers move through all these materials and just changing how ions are distributed in a solution. They found that these, these hydrogels, like, Applying electrical field distributes the ions in the solution asymmetrically, causing the hydrogel to swell on one side and bend. It literally adapts. And so for me, 
you know, and I think it was Rutgers University, uh, Korea. I, I don't have it in front of me, but so they just learned that these structures learn how to adapt and they literally move with whatever their internal, whatever their, uh, not internal, but surrounding structures are. And to me, like they can, they can swell, they can bend, they can go thicker. Um, when electrical fields are applied, these particular uh, structures, they can reverse, but more than anything, they adapt. And so they actually printed all of these 3D complex structures um, and they, they tested it more on very sophisticated tasks. And so the structure literally is like an artificial muscle and it's powered by the body's electrical impulses. Well, all right, where do our electrical impulses come from? Are they internal? Can they be um, allocated externally? For me, it was fascinating. So this is the chemical and engineering news. It was published June 5th, 2018. Um, look it up. I found it fascinating and thanks for And guys, I get so frustrated and have listened for 30 years about people saying, oh, there's glyphosate in the air. There's glyphosate in the water. There's hydrogel or graphene oxide in all your foods, in your plastic wrappings. But do we take those foods in plastic wrappings or glyphosate in water and inject it into our bloodstream. No, we do not. It does different things when you inject it than when you breathe it or in, uh, ingest it. Our, our mucus layers, mucus lining, and our digestive tract has a different way of handling toxins. Doesn't mean it's healthy for us, but we handle it quite differently through that pathway than when it is injected into us. And I would really love if Amanda's here, what her response would be from internal versus external. Um, very much from a from a wound care perspective, Tammy, it's external. Um, so we would call a hydrogel a medical device rather than a pharmaceutical product, um, effectively. Although you can cross the boundary, if that makes sense, in terms of um, you can have an implantable medical device, um, which, however, the, the, the borderline between a pharmaceutical and a medical device is that a pharmaceutical will act principally um, by pharmacological, metabolic or immunological means, and a medical device will not um, so they're the complete opposite of each other, if that makes sense. Um, there are um, hydrogels with 101 ingredients. Um, so there's a lot of difference between them. Um, and I would want to know what's in what's in each one and what is it being used for. Um, so our class one medical device would just sit on the surface of the skin. The class two medical device would be broken skin and the class three medical device would be would be either antimicrobial 
or deeper, deeper in a wound, in a cavity wound, for example, um, or those implantable medical devices also fall within class three as well. Um, but they've been used for a very long time. Um, and, and really in wound care, it's simply for moisturizing. That's what its purpose is. So there's no purpose of um, uh, anything but the, the donation of moisture to a wound surface. Um, which you need to actually help and assist with wound healing. So it's quite simple in a wound care setting. Uh, it's a storage tube for moisture, and and it's actually very often misused, Tammy. <laughs> so we find we find nurses very commonly squirting a lot more hydrogel over a wound than they really need to, and um, because once you put some pressure on that hydrogel, of course, it it gives up all its moisture very quickly and you end up with a soggy wound situation instead of a moist wound situation. So we do find they're misused a lot of the time. I hope that. I would also it, like it, to add. Sure. I, I'm sorry, uh, Brendan. I just have one question for you, Amanda. So I get that externally in wound care that the moisture helps heal a wound. And um, yeah, like you said earlier today, like if it's a drying, uh, scaly situation, you really want to um, give a little hydrogel to uh, moisten the wound and encourage healing. So what benefit would these have within vascular systems? Can I add something while you... Um, in, in, in a vascular situation, actually, I don't see a benefit, um, if that makes sense, because you don't want to thicken um, the situation. You actually want a free-flowing situation. To Angela's point, they're not, they're not intended to be injected into the, into the bloodstream. Um, and, and for me... Um, I wouldn't want to put anything gelling um, inside inside the circulatory system. Angela, I don't know how you feel. I think my tone of frustration was quite clear about how I feel about that. I'm completely against injecting these things that are going to coagulate mm -hmm. our blood into the bloodstream and glyphosate directly poisons the blood and that's in all the other vaccines that we know of god only knows if can i just add that i had an injury last year and what they did what they use hydrogel for physio for many things okay they use it for things like um some uh, some type of scanning on the surface. Um, I forgot the name of the type of scanning. They also use it for treatment. And in the treatment, what they're doing now is they are doing injections. They are doing a dry, sort of a dry acupuncture. But guess what? They rub on your body first. Mm-hmm because it's electroconductive. That's why they use it before ultrasound. And that's the whole point. So if it is electroconductive, 
and you're putting a gel within the vascular system, um, that gives external forces, and I could be completely wrong, but it appears that it's giving potentially external forces uh, game for your internal Right, we've got a number of other people on the stage. Uh, do you want to vote? Would you like to speak or would you like to hear a bit of this documentary, um, which follows on really from the Lancet letter, the one that the guy, uh, Mr. Horton, Richard Horton, was interviewed by in the British Parliament this afternoon on the first part of the show. Those that were listening would have heard the Lancet effectively trying to make excuses for why not all the information that they were uh, holding was actually sort of given out. And in particular, why they published some letters, two or three letters, signed by many different scientists that appear to have known a lot more about the potential lab leak theory being a justifiable one than the Lancet were allowed or decided to make public at the time. And this letter caused a hell of a lot of controversy. And I think it's interesting just to see what happened as a result of it. Um, I'll just give you a couple of minutes and then we'll take a break. Um, I don't want to bore you with too many tapes and I know we've got lots of great conversation. Let me just try this audio and see how we are going on it. These were not scientific papers. They did not present scientific evidence. They did not analyze and report scientific data. They were presenting opinions. They did not belong in scientific journals. They were much more appropriate for the pages of the Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. What did I make of the letter? I was, um, I was a little... Uh, perplexed and a little bit upset with five very good scientists, some of whom I know well personally, who I thought stepped way out beyond what they should have been saying based upon the data available to all of us. Small group of scientists aided by a larger group of journalists established and enforced the false narrative that science showed SARS-CoV-2 entered humans through a natural zoonotic spillover. And the further false narrative that this was the scientific consensus. A small group of internet sleuths and scientists were about to challenge that consensus. Okay, how is the sound on that? Hello? How was the sound, guys? Yep, okay. Um, so this is the Channel 4 documentary. There's a link to it on my profile. Um, can somebody else put the link to the viral book, please, at the top of the page? Because I've gone to do it about five times and then somebody has asked me to do something else. <laughs> I'm not multitasking. Um, but if you just go to Amazon, put in viral, 
and Matt Ridley and Alina Chan. If you could just get the link, somebody please, and put it at the top of the page to enable people in the audience to get it, because I've got a million back message, back passage, back passage messages asking for it. Um, meanwhile, I will continue with this. It just explains some really interesting stuff that was covered up um, about the Wuhan lab leak theory. So, money penny may I make a quick suggestion? Yep. So instead of trying to respond to all of this back channels, just make one effort to change the the one article at the top of the page, and then they'll all have it. Then you don't have to. Yeah, do I don't know what all the back channel messages are because I haven't read them all so, yet. There's about well, forty-two father, of them, so um, I don't even know if they're all asking for this. Book. I can't find it. I'll post it for you. Right, let me just get this video going first, if you don't mind, and then I'll come back to you. Because uh, <laughs> it's difficult. That's why, because it's difficult. And now I've lost my wait, train wait, of thought. Wait a minute. Are you saying that the virus came from a Wuhan lab? I thought it came from bunny rabbits. James, you are late in the conversation. Um, <laughs> holy cow, that's super true. <laughs> Hi guys, how are y'all? <laughs> Not just bunny rabbits, James. Bunny rabbits with sharp teeth. <laughs> right, sorry, for some reason it's playing an extensively long advert, which is ridiculous in the middle of this. So Gosh, sorry guys. Money, uh, money, while you're, I'm just, while uh, you're like doing that, I really want to know I'm, because James is the artist he is the master of data so james i would really love if you could just give a give us a quick synopsis um on your latest uh COVID data you've got 40 seconds go it's the same thing we actually created it in the united states it was already done here just like every other product that's created like on shark tank you create the mvp product here in the u.s you test it out on some people, and if it works, you send it over to China, and China mass produces it. The end. Yeah, and you try it out on 9,000 athletes who are super fit, who come from all parts of the world, who by signing to the military have given up their legal right to their own bodies so that if something goes wrong, you're okay, and your experiment will never be revealed because they've all signed a military thing to say they've given their life to the military. Hey, presto, and now we go straight back to the documentary. Hey, Money Penny, I sent you the back channel with the link for the. Um, a number of intrepid researchers with a variety of skills, scientists, physicians, data and security experts, were starting to use the internet to challenge the consensus that the pandemic had a natural origin. In time, they would coalesce under the name Drastic, standing for Decentralized Radical Autonomous Search Team Investigating COVID 19. One of them is a data analyst in the financial sector, Gilles Demanouf. Basically, we were you know, dropped into a maze, and all the work we did with Drastic at the very beginning is just trying to find out the different little windows of data that would actually let us get a bit of light. Uh, and then everything changed as soon as the Lancet letter was published. We were the conspiracy theorists. When people in the West starting asking 
similar questions and with more data, they were told to shut up. One of the scientists who refused to shut up was Dr. Rosanna Segreto, an expert in analyzing genomes. I thought, what is going on? What is this virus? I, I, I was really interested and uh, curious to get to know more about it. So as soon as the genome was available uh, in uh, GeneBank, so this big database where uh, all researchers put the genome of different organisms, I downloaded. In February 2020, Dr. Xu Li, a leading virologist, announced that she had discovered in the Wuhan Institute of Virology sample bank a bat coronavirus with a 96.2% similarity to SARS-CoV-2, commonly known as COVID-19. This made it the closest known relative to the virus, killing people around the world. So I got very much uh, curious about this strain. And I thought, wow, that's so close to SARS-CoV-2, but uh, it's been not described before. Why they describe it now? So the story is a little bit complicated, actually. It's really like a, to follow a labyrinth. Dr. Segreto wanted to compare the newly identified strain named RATG13 with other bat coronaviruses. She came across a sample collected earlier by Dr. Xu Zhengli, labeled 4991, and she ran a program to compare the two genomes. I found this 100% identity of RATG13 with the bat coronavirus 4991. And that, for me, was really a big surprise. Across the globe in India, microbiologist Dr. Manali Rahalka was also becoming intrigued by the identical structure of bat coronaviruses RATG13 and the earlier 4991. I also tried to blast COVID-4991 with RATG13 and found that 4991 small piece of uh, 370 bases. That particular piece completely matched with RATG13. If, as they now suspected, RATG13 and 4991 were the same virus, could 4991 tell them more about the origin of COVID-19? The next step was to work out where these samples had come from before they were taken to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. All Dr. Xu Zhengli had revealed about RATG13 was that it was collected from Yunnan, a Chinese province larger than Germany. It's not only scientists' work, he was going into data and trying to discover things that were not made public, so more like a detective. The trail of clues on 4991 led to another scientific paper written by Xu Zhengli, which revealed the precise location where 4991 had been found, a mine in Mojang, in Yunnan province. I read this paper and it was written that uh, there was an abandoned mine shaft in Mojang and there were six different types of bats in it. And uh, these six, six different bats had different coronaviruses. They then uncovered more about 4991 from a news article. They discovered that the Mojang mine was hiding a dark secret. This had more details, like it was written that actually there was a copper mine shaft in Mojang and uh, six people had gone to clean the uh, bad guano in that cave. And three of them died in uh, 2012. That was because of... Um, of pneumonia that uh, uh, gave symptoms so similar to uh, COVID-19. After several scientific journals declined to publish her research, 
Manali Rahalka made her work available online without peer review, and she challenged the Wuhan lab to answer a series of questions. In November 2020, nine months after her original paper linking RATG13 to COVID-19, Dr. Xu Zhengli officially changed her account. It wasn't called a retraction, it was called an addendum to its initial paper saying, ah, yes, 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 we were talking about that same virus, we just changed the name. That's very embarrassing, that doesn't happen often in science. Shi Zhengli confirmed that she had sequenced the bat coronavirus 4991 in 2016 and then renamed it as RATG13 when she announced the genome to the world. RATG13, rather than being sequenced after the start of the pandemic, had actually been sequenced by the Institute several years before the pandemic. Dr. Xu Zhengli also admitted, as Dr. Rahalka and Dr. Segreto had suspected, that this bat coronavirus had been found in the Mojang mine following a fatal pneumonia outbreak. By renaming the sample, they, they broke that link between RATG13 and the Mojang mine the mine where the miners had died from a SARS illness. So it was up to internet sleuths and scientists like uh, Rosanna and Mona Lee to track down that link, to, to connect RATG13 to Bad 4991 to the Mojang mine to the miners. The next step for Drastic was to investigate exactly how the miners died. A specialist in searching large databases who calls himself a seeker was about to make some momentous discoveries. He has never given an interview on camera before. There were two prominent databases. I was uh, searching for Mojiang and uh, in combination with other keywords such as SARS or coronaviruses or bats maybe. The moment I read the abstract, I knew that it was about the same cases that was described in, uh, you know, a literature. The seeker had discovered a Chinese doctor's thesis containing details of the medical treatment including lung scans and serum samples of the six miners infected in the Mojang mine. At that moment, it felt pretty big. Um, so, uh, yeah. Three of the miners died. The diagnosis of uh, every patient, the, the treatment they underwent, the CT scans of the lungs, the probable cause of the miners' deaths and the illness, uh, and, and there are recommendations by various doctors, including the top uh, SARS expert from China, Dr. Zhong Lanshan. So I'm reading his thesis, you know, putting myself in his shoes. And, you know, the first thing he thinks, this is SARS, you know, and uh, you say, yep, you know, this, you know, it's come out of a bat cave. Um, you know, they're extremely sick. They're lymphopenic. Um, you know, they have high fevers. You know, he's spot on. I am a clinician. I was trained in infectious disease. When you read the accounts of these cases from back in 2012, it's very clear that everybody looked at those cases and said, this is SARS until proven otherwise. It raises the very question that I think is the premise of much of the current concern about these cases. They may not have had the original SARS, but could they have had a SARS-like virus or a related virus? And I think the answer is clearly yes, they could have. But Dr. Xu Zhengli claimed that the miners had actually died of a fungal infection. 
asking this question of a fungus, and in particular, the famous fungus found carried by bats uh, and commonly transmitted to humans in, in caves. I think it's much less likely. Why? Because all six of those individuals were treated with antifungal drugs, and yet none of the six got immediately better, and three of them died. And in fact, one of the survivors never did get an antifungal drug. So I don't think that fungal disease is nearly as good an explanation as a SARS-like virus. The second thesis that the drastic people discovered uh, was another thesis that Dr. Xi supervised at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And this one had the information that the blood tests on the miners showed that they had antibodies to a SARS-related bat coronavirus, not fungus. The Mojang Mayan became a focus of research. From 2012 onwards, Xi Zhengli and the Wuhan Institute of Virology mounted repeated expeditions to gather new and unknown bat coronavirus samples from the place where the miners had died. Dr. Xi's laboratory was notified immediately and sent expeditions and then went back multiple, multiple times. Yet Xu Zhengli did not originally tell the world that RATG13, the closest relative to the pandemic virus, had been found in the Mojang mine. We know they're trying to downplay it enormously. We know they found a coronavirus that, you know, is the closest possible relative there. I think uh, China has to be more transparent about the data and everyone has been demanding, particularly for these sequences and they should have, uh, you know, opened them much uh, earlier. But still, it's science. I think it's good to give all the details and not to hide anything because otherwise people start to think uh, the worst. The Chinese clearly were taking that outbreak very seriously. They didn't tell the rest of the world, and they certainly, as far as I'm aware, never informed WHO of that outbreak. Put yourself in 2012. You have an institute dedicated to the discovery of emerging viruses for the primary purpose of warning the world about the next pandemic. If that's your mission, and you see three people die and three others barely escape with their lives, where you now find a bunch of very interesting, previously unknown viruses, why don't you tell the world immediately? In fact, why don't you tell the world that six people got deathly ill, three of whom died? We don't yet know the cause, but we're working on it really hard. The trail of clues about the possible origin of COVID-19 now led to a new question. What were scientists doing with the bat coronaviruses they collected in Okay. So another little break for you. How are you feeling about the information you just learnt, guys? Anybody on? They lied. They... Joe, you've joined the stage. How are you doing today? I'm okay. Uh, the, the one question that got me here was that the only one that survived did not have an antifungal medication. Now, is this a question? Is this another example of medicine causing the death and not the virus? 
I'm just wondering. I'm just thinking as I listen to that. How many times have we been prescribed medicines that kill us when the disease does? So anyway, I don't know the answer to the question. I'm just throwing that out there. But anyway, I like I like the the, the manner in which they uh, investigated this. It was really yeah. You know, it's a good online. documentary. Yes, yeah. that she went online without any peer review. And then it just kind of, you know, of course, it makes that person a sitting duck, you know, in terms of, you know, being targeted because now they know who she is. But it takes brave people like that to tear this whole thing down. But, yeah, that's those are my thoughts. And we have Robert. Robert. Hello, Miss Moneypenny. Um, no, I was just listening uh, intently. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. What does, what I am, I've said this before, but. What I'm always struck by is the fact that this was possibly the most toxic conspiracy theory we could have mentioned at the beginning of the pandemic, sort of, you know, February, March 2020. I remember being shot down in flames, even questioning the zoonotic uh, link and the wet market story and all the rest of it. Um, and the fact that this lab's about 150 metres from, from the wet market just seemed to pass people by. It was amazing. And now it's mainstream and now it's in Parliament and now it's on Channel 4 and now it's kind of, you know, it's the it's now the dominant theory of, uh, of where it came from. So it's it's um, it's remarkable how these things turn around. I'm always quite uh, and at this time in particular, you know, the number of in this in this event in, in the last nearly two years, the number of I was looking back today um, at some sites where they were saying, oh, this ridiculous conspiracy theory about passport vaccine passports i mean what a load of nonsense you know i mean there's been so many it's it's really really quite amusing in some ways darkly amusing how many uh how many so-called conspiracy theories from 18 months ago are now just mainstream or they're just happening you know it's it's quite maybe we can take off our tinfoil hats soon hey mick <laughs> <laughs> uh, kayley you've just joined the stage would you like to add at this stage or do you want to no, I have a, a question. If this virus um, that she found in the, you know, among the miners that killed them, it sounds like it was more uh, deadly than what was released from the laboratory. Well, you know, they took a very deadly virus that already could kill human beings. And then what did they do to it? Yeah. Well, we may find out in a little minute, but I do also think my own theory, which may come to be explained a bit further on, it wasn't just SARS-CoV-2 that they had. It was actually the pneumonia that comes with or from SARS-CoV-2, which adds additional uh, pathology and deadliness mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Let's see if Thank we can you. continue. Caves. Just me. I always stop it just before the advert comes in. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to run uh, through the advert, which I have to do for two minutes. So, um, Angela and other mods, if you can help me out by doing a little bit of a reset and introducing people and getting people pinged in that would be this is joe i was wondering if i i, I, I had a question for uh one of the people on the stage um 
I, when we're talking about the hydrogel and that um, that it goes inside the body and it creates things and it hides, are are you familiar with biofilms? And I'm wondering, is this a, a very sophisticated biofilm that that has been created? Not so much. It's lipophilic, so it's going for fat cells and organs that like fat. Okay. But how does it hide? I don't know that it does hide. It gets in the cells, in the red blood cells, and in the fat cells. Okay. There was, um, they were linking, okay, hang, hang on a second. I, I'm gonna land my friend. I I'm being distracted with my mom. Amanda, did you have any more uh, thoughts on that? Um I'm a little perplexed actually how we've all landed on hydrogels because they're very they're very um innocuous from from our wound care perspective, um, if that makes sense. And and we don't have I, I just have problems when people use them inappropriately from a wound care perspective. So we don't see them um, from a vascular perspective. The one thing that I, I was thinking of, Angela, actually, is the trauma clotting um, granules, you know, where you can literally uh, throw a sachet of trauma clotting granules into a bullet wound or a trauma wound, and temporarily it's going to literally gel clot, hold everything, but only as long as you can get them to theatre then, and actually start working on the damage in terms of the trauma wound. So I had no concept at all about how they are. And all I'm hearing now in my brain is that oh, we've moved on from hydras to hydrogels. <laughs> I'm getting... <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. And I think where my brain get, goes, keeps going back to is the lipid nanoparticle is really what's carrying the... Um, mRNA and whatever else is included uh, into the body. And that's how we know that it's lipophilic, it's lipid loving, right? It's a lipid nanoparticle that's doing it. And from everything I understand, even from what Moneypenny was clarifying with what she was reading, if uh, PEG and or um, graphene hydroxide or anything else is involved, and again, graphene hydroxide is where they're talking about the sharp little objects that they're seeing under microscope. If all that's involved, it is going with the lipid nanoparticle. That's where the fat loving comes. You see, this is why I love tackling. I, I love, I'd much prefer to tackle a virus before it ever gets into the body, Angela. Nope. <laughs> and this is why, this is why we're using biosurfactants so that we can actually break down that, that lipid envelope around the virus itself and, and help prevent it from even getting through the mucus, uh, the okay, mucosal surface. The big unanswered question was how it made the jump to humans. In China and around the globe, Scientists continue to search for new animal viruses with the potential to create future pandemics and to study them in laboratories. There was a disputed but credible view um, that in order to prevent the next pandemic, we had to go out and study and collect the most dangerous viruses and poke and prod them 
in order to understand how they might mutate in ways that would put us at risk. This type of scientific research is known as gain of function, and it is very controversial. The whole issue about gain of function is really about risky research. It in general means work that seeks to add a function to something that doesn't have it to start. And there are two properties that everybody is most concerned about, two possible functions that one might deliberately add to a, an infectious agent, for example. One of them is transmissibility, and the other one is virulence, or the property of causing harm. When you put those two things together, you suddenly have a thing that you truly have to worry about. That's where you create the monster that you're terrified of. And that is precisely what scientists did with another pathogen, avian influenza in 2013. If you get infected by an avian influenza virus, you have about a 50-50 chance whether you survive or die. Um, fortunately, it doesn't transmit between humans. So gain-of-function research in that context is taking that virus that's already 50% lethal to humans if they get infected, and now we give it a property that it will freely transmit between humans. So this virus has the potential to kill half the world's population. And you have just created it deliberately. So just digest that. And when they presented their work in the form of a written manuscript, a lot of us, when we saw it for the first time, said, holy crap, this is incredibly risky work. And we need to stop and have a conversation about it. Relman and other concerned scientists lobbied President Obama about the risks of gain-of-function research. And from October 2014, the White House imposed a moratorium on its funding. Only funding moratorium on gain-of-function research with a whole bunch of caveats, unfortunately. Research already underway before Obama's moratorium was exempt including work on SARS viruses. This enabled Dr. Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina and Dr. Xu Zhengli to continue their work together on genetically enhancing bat coronaviruses. Well, Dr. Xu and Dr. Barrick were working on beta coronaviruses that might attack humans, so they wanted to test their viruses uh, essentially on humans, which obviously you can't do for ethical reasons. So a stand-in for human subjects are these humanized mice. Eric and Xu Zhengli were studying the original deadly SARS virus. Though SARS kills people, they knew it couldn't infect mice. In order to study it, they took the human ACE2 gene and they stuck it into mice to make humanized ACE2 transgenic mice, and they became a perfect model because now the original SARS virus would not only infect those mice, it would kill them. By using humanized mice, Barrett and Xu Zhengli were now able to experiment on a novel virus. They created a chimera, an artificially engineered bat coronavirus which could infect human cells. There was a moratorium to undertake that type of research in the US, 
And as we now know, some of that research subsequently moved to China. By 2015, armed with the knowledge about gain of function she had learned in American laboratories, Dr. Shizheng Li had returned to Wuhan. Some of her work there was funded by grants from American bodies such as the National Institutes of Health, channeled through Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance. What seems to have happened is there was an outsourcing to the EcoHealth Alliance uh, to support efforts in places which could not be adequately monitored. So the Wuhan Institute of Virology was in many ways and remains in many ways a black box where there was information coming in, there was funding coming in, but information, adequate information was not and is not coming out. Given Obama's moratorium, the critical question is whether American money was being used for gain-of-function research in China. Dr. Fauci of the NIH is adamant that it was not. I will repeat again, the NIH and NIAID categorically has not funded gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But other scientists disagree. The problem is with this terminology, gain of function, and as everyone might now have surmised, it's used differently by different people. The NIH has adopted a narrower definition of this particular form of work. When they talk about gain of function, they're talking about work that's set out with a specific purpose of adding one or, or both of those two functions to something that didn't have it. So it's the intentionality of it. Using my definition, meaning work that could be reasonably anticipated to create a new virus that had enhanced transmissibility or enhanced virulence, yes, based on that definition, the Wuhan Institute was clearly doing that kind of work. How do we know? They published it. And to answer the question, was it supported by the NIH? The answer is yes, indirectly, but yes. How do we know? The paper says right on the front page, supported by NIAID, NIH. It says it right there. Dr. Xu Zhengli's team was creating chimeras of newly discovered bat coronaviruses some of which were probably collected from the area around the Mojang mine where three miners had died. These coronaviruses were chimeras which could infect human cells. In 2017, they published a paper in which they constructed novel chimeras uh, in which they introduced the spike genes from previously uncharacterized bat SARS-related coronaviruses into the genomic backbone of another bat SARS-related coronavirus. That work most definitely is gain-of-function research of concern, most definitely is potential pandemic pathogen enhancement, in that one starts with a virus that they themselves described as a clear and present danger. That work describes exactly the kind of work that, in my view, is too risky to begin without a deliberate discussion. Should we do this? If so, let's understand the reasons for going forward and let's understand the precautions that we're going to take. That doesn't seem to have happened. So you make it in the laboratory. 
It does not exist in nature. And then you're going to test it on those specialized cell cultures or what's called humanized mice. And that is exactly what the research grant was. There's no way on the face of the earth that you cannot define this as gain-of-function research. Flat and simple. However dangerous some gain-of-function experiments are, the assumption has always been that they would be carried out under strict biosafety conditions. But even then, leaks can still occur. Accidents in labs happen frequently, and viruses, very dangerous viruses, have escaped quite often uh, from even high-secure uh, labs. In the UK, for instance, there was a foot-and-mouth disease outbreak in 2007, um, which was caused by a, a leaked, leaking drainage pipe uh, in a secure uh, high containment facility. So this is not something that would be unique to China. Before people get too excited about the Chinese being sloppy and all the rest of it, it's probably worth looking in your own backyard. These things happen, but let's just be clear, it's not just the Chinese. If, if it emerges that it did come out of the Institute in China, and to be clear, that's not proved yet, but the, it's, they're not the only people with this kind of an issue. When the drastic researchers investigated the Wuhan Institute of Virology facilities, they discovered there were other labs beyond the high safety level foresight shown in the Institute's promotional film. The first thing that um, struck us is that there's not just one lab. There's about six or seven labs that are, or I would say, sites that have been linked or are linked to some coronavirus uh, research. The next question was at what safety levels the bat coronavirus research was undertaken. It has become clear from documentary sources, including statements from the researchers, that this work was carried out at biosafety level two and biosafety level three, primarily at biosafety level two. It has a level of protection, mandated protection, that is comparable to a U.S. or U.K. dentist's office. That is the level at which almost all of this research was performed, both the high-risk surveillance research on that SARS-related coronaviruses and the high-risk gain-of-function research of concern. Oops. What do you reckon, guys, what is going on here? And how much more convinced are we? What, and we gave Mrs. Dr. Jackal free license to go crazy without proper uh, and we've heard mention of Dr. Barrick being a big part Indeed. can you get hello my, I'm sorry the phone is kind of being weird but what I was going to say was that like it's also very weird that they keep referring it to it as a hybrid or chimeric virus you know, those kind of viruses do show up in nature, but not as um, easily as they make it sound like, you know, um, and how they start talking about the gain of function research. And even in those studies, they found that um, the enhanced coronavirus that they made wasn't responsive to any of the vaccines that they were giving it. So I think that like a lot of that research is very telling and how they're telling it is not really telling the whole truth. I feel like it's very disingenuous. 
and a true chimeric takes multiple generations of the virus to be able to jump from mammal to human. It's so it sounds like they did this knowingly on purpose with an intent, a malintent. They kept trying until they could perfect the sequencing. And is it a lab leak? No, it's something that was let loose, it seems like, because of the, and I'll tell you why, because it looks like what they're saying is that there were manufactured variants. That's why they had a vaccine. But the vaccine you might have is not the vaccine they have. They have an antidote. How about that? Because for every disease that's been out there, apparently there's an antidote. And it seems that with the creation of the transgenic mice, with the ACE2 receptors, they made it jump from mammal to human. This, this question actually came up in the parliamentary uh, discussion group today, Money Penny, and both of the authors of the viral book were asked their opinion on whether this was a deliberate um, leak versus a buggery of everything, basically. And their opinion was that it wasn't deliberate, both of them, interestingly. Um, so this notion of, of everything that's going on in terms of the research absolutely, you know, should not be going on. But that you you uh, that there is a big difference between Amanda. Didn't both of them have two questions? The first one being, was this naturally made or was it made in a lab? And they both said it was made in a lab. And then the second question, as you rightly say, was, okay, we assume it's made in a lab. Was it leaked deliberately or accidentally? And that's the second question. You said they both thought it was an accident. Is that correct? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That the, they couldn't find um, evidence for it having been deliberate, if that makes sense. But we do know the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So, yeah. Well, saying saying that. Oh, sorry. There was someone else that was going to speak, but I was just going to say really quickly. Everything they say when they say, "Oh, we're not going to do this," they end up doing. So for them to say, "Oh, it wasn't deliberate; it was an accident," then you know you read between the lines what it probably was. And for the planning games that were going on in uh, in New York or Washington DC, I can't remember. And for, you know, all the other evidence that we've been looking at, it just makes it hard to go, oh, it happened to leak from a lab at the same time they were talking about a pandemic. I don't know, maybe. If only Dr. Paul Right, I've just opened the hands again. I just, um, mods, if you can do me a favour, because when it's playing, I can't actually use the two devices of which one is playing to the other. So I can't check people and bring them up and all that stuff. If you could do that for me, that would be fantastic. I'm going to go on to play the last part of this. Um, and I've opened the hands. So people in the audience, if you want to come and join, you're very welcome. But keep your mic closed for now while we hear the rest of this incredibly intriguing and revealing report. And that's sorts of way the coronaviruses. Xi Zhangli is on record saying we never did bad coronavirus studies uh, at the BSL-4 level. 
And she's saying we did our, all our studies at uh, BSL-2 level and BSL-3 level. When we're talking, though, about new infectious agents and, and potentially the discovery of agents that we know nothing about, then we have to make a judgment call. I used to chair the biosafety panel here at Stanford for 10 years. What we do is we say, what can you expect to find? The Chinese government told the Wuhan Institute, if you don't know what you have, BSL-2 is okay. She accepted that it was fine to work at a biosafety level two, but as a world expert on coronaviruses, on the sorts of risks that they um, carry, she should have known better than working, accepting that work should go ahead at a biosafety level two. Here in the United States, Ralph Barrick, who was collaborating with these people in Wuhan and knew the very same things about bat samples, had already decided that he was using three when he didn't know what was going to come out or when he was when he was engineering some of these back coronaviruses. <laughs> it's like a gun. It's like it's like a gun where you don't know it's loaded or not. So you treat it as unloaded. I mean, who would be crazy enough to pick up a gun they've never seen before? put it to their head, and pull the trigger. But that's what you do if you're collecting viruses in the wild. You have no idea if, if they're potential lethal human pathogens, and you bring them back and you just start playing with them in the lab at a very low security level. And, but we know that's what was happening. So do you call that a gain of function or just do you call it stupidity? Dr. Sheng Li was called for comment. She wouldn't comment. Okay, that's end of part three. And we've got some new people on the stage. So, Angela, I'm just going to hand over to you if you can lead the room for. Welcome to the stage, Kyle and Stacey. Did you guys have any thoughts on what we've. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, I, I've been on the pay on the on the room, but I've been in and out listening. But the, um, how do you say it? Chimera, Chimera, Chimera. Mm -hmm. Chimera. Um, I seen a video, and I don't know if you talked about that or are familiar with that. The Milken um, video with Dr. Fauci and his colleagues when they're talking about the universal flu vaccine and Looking at that video and all of those people's body language that were discussing this universal flu vaccine, you can easily just substitute um, coronavirus, a COVID vaccine that they're talking about. And even to the point where their their body language and kind of their side jokes they make about the the money. I mean, it's I don't know if any of you have seen that video, but it's very telling. And I I just wanted to add that to look at that if anybody's interested in when they're talking about a universal flu vaccine and then one of the ladies, a doctor, I can't remember the names, I'd have to go back and look, but um, she chimes in and says something like, we would need something extraordinary or something to that effect, you know, something really big, like we need something super big to come out with, you know, um, it, it's crazy, but that's all I wanted to add. I'm I'm just really listening. 
I have not but, but, seen oh, it to my to the chimeras. That's what it was. That was the first time I heard that Dr. Fauci mentioned that and said something about that. And like I said, I have to go back exactly because I had no idea what a chimera was. So if it has to do with bats and such, they were talking about this in a universal flu vaccine discussion. All right, that's it, Eileen. I'm, I'm done. Thank you, Stacey. Anybody? Michaela, welcome to stage. Did you have anything you wanted to share with us? Um, I, I, I've just been doing housework, so I missed some of that. But I still have that question that I asked earlier. Uh, if they use this virus from the cave from the, that killed the miners, did they make it less deadly in order to have it spread more? Or? Yeah, well, again, to the point that Stacy made and what some of us have discussed, if they truly mm, created a pathogen in order to release a mass-planned uh, vaccine, which we know the vaccine uh, patents pre-exist the release of a pathogen, mm -hmm. so or predate. Um, one might, I don't know, think about what 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 could happen, and if they would release it again, I don't think they'd be wanting to release something that is going to wipe everybody out. I I don't mm -hmm. follow that theory. I've heard people say that. Um, I don't follow that theory at all. Yeah. Um, so, again, if it had anything to do with the, the cave, if it had anything to do with the bats, clearly Bat Lady was uh, experimenting with those viruses in her lab. That's mm -hmm. She admitted that. So uh, did something from that become aerosolized and get into another coronavirus in the lab? I don't know. Oh. Yeah, and they were saying, and they added the spike or something. Um, I sort of got disconnected for a little bit, but the, the yeah, they added a spike from another virus that they were okay. working on. So the virus from the cave was deadly without the spike. Yes, I believe so. From what we've said, and the spike is what's killing us now. Well, I think the virus from the cave, because they know it was a SARS virus itself, would have had its own spike but they then oh. either replaced or added a second spike to it. Oh, okay. I'd have to go and re-listen to it, but yeah. certainly that's okay. like a Molotov cocktail of spikes <laughs> and viruses. Or a bio. Yes, okay. a bio cocktail. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay, we're back Thanks. just for another few minutes and here we go. Scientists agreed that the ancestor of COVID-19 must have come from bats in the wild. Drastic wanted to know whether any living bats might have been taken to the Wuhan lab for further study. On December 10th, 2020, Peter Daszak tweeted that the Wuhan laboratories did not have live or dead bats in them. Using a familiar mantra, he declared that the idea they did was a conspiracy theory. Yet, a film made by the Wuhan Institute of Virology to celebrate the construction of its PSL-4 laboratory in 2018 clearly shows bats in their cages. 
turns out they do have bat cages and they do work with live bats as well as just samples from bats. The Wuhan Institute of Virology has also filed patents for new designs for bat cages. This was discovered by the Drastic Group. They went and found the patents for the bat cages that the Wuhan Institute designed to hold the bats it brought back from the caves in Yunnan. And they had live bats at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And that's now publicly knowledge. Within the maze of questions, one above all had remained unanswered. If the virus did have a zoonotic origin, what was the intermediate species that bridged the bat to human jump? To find the answer, Professor Petrovsky and his team used computer models to test which species the virus bound to most strongly, and he came up with a surprising answer. It was us, humans. The strength of the binding of that virus for human cells was greater than any animal we tested, not just bats, but, you know, pangolins, monkeys, mice, you know, cattle, sheep, you know, you name it. That was astonishing. That was highly unusual. And obviously you start to ask questions. If it came from humans, but it didn't come from humans, can is there a, a way you could explain that? And then it was that sort of eureka moment, you know, the, the, where you have humans that aren't humans is in cell cultures. One possibility was that the ancestor of COVID-19 had been grown in a lab in human cells or in humanized mice until after multiple generations, it evolved the ability to infect humans. Now just the tiniest single viral particle in the air is enough to infect the first human and then rapidly transmit because now it doesn't need to adapt. I mean, you have the perfect human virus already at the time you have the very first case. And that would explain this rapid transmission, the lack of need of the virus to adapt. You know, during the first months, there was really minimal adaptation of the virus because it didn't need to. And that is, that is simply not normal of any pandemic virus that we've seen before. This coronavirus had other anomalies. Prominent among them was that COVID-19 had what is known as a furin cleavage site. A furin cleavage site is a really advantageous and unique feature that's found in the spike of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So how the, how the spike works is that they are sticking out of the virus particle and their whole job is to latch onto the whole cells. So maybe a human cell and unlock the door, allowing the virus to get into the human cell and instead the whole process of hijacking it. This is a feature that is unusual for this group of viruses. So there was not a furin cleavage site in the original SARS coronavirus. There are not furin cleavage sites in any other previously identified or reported uh, SARS-related beta coronaviruses. So the question arises, how on earth did, did he get it? It's been pointed by some that the presence of this relatively unusual feature may be a signature of genetic manipulation. The basis for that comes from the fact that 
one group of gain-of-function research experiments that had been performed repeatedly, including on coronaviruses, including on this subset of coronaviruses, has been to engineer a furin cleavage site at precisely that location in viral genome. Not all scientists are convinced that the presence of the furin cleavage site proves it was engineered. What scientists on the other side say is that we have not collected and studied enough viruses in nature to rule out the fact that this site could not have naturally emerged. With all this scientific information available, the stage was set for an investigation. In February 2021, after repeated delays, the World Health Organization's team finally began work in China. But from the start, there were concerns that some things would be off limits to them. The United States government suggested three people included among them were a top expert in investigating the kind of lab incident problem uh, that should have been investigated. Uh, the World Health Organization instead chose Peter Dejic as the sole American. And probably the reason why they did that is because the Chinese government had a veto over who got to be part of this international committee. The WHO team also had to follow strict guidelines imposed by the Chinese government. This was not a WHO investigation. This was a joint investigation with China, where China very much was shaping the, the mandate of the mission, as well as what they could see and who they could speak to and what records they would have access to when they were on the ground in China. So from day one, the mandate of this joint study was to not adequately consider a possible lab incident. And so they didn't, and instead focused on a natural origin from an intermediary species. The Chinese certainly have been looking for an intermediary animal, uh, but when the WHO Commission visited Beijing in the February of this year, the Chinese have absolutely no evidence to give them. And Dr. Anderson, in his Nature Medicine letter, said that the, that the intermediary host will be in some animal with a large population. So it shouldn't be, have been too difficult to find. So despite the Chinese you know, doing 90,000 animal samples, they went to all the wet markets. Uh, they found no evidence of any infected animal, either domestic or wild. So this is their own data. It's in the WHO report. Absolutely nothing. Squeaky clean. In the end, despite everything we now know, the WHO report claimed a natural origin was still most likely, and the lab leak still highly unlikely. But recently, the lead investigator, Peter Embrack, revealed that he thought it was likely a lab worker had been infected. With so many questions unanswered, President Biden announced an Intelligence Committee investigation to report back in 90 days. That report will be published shortly. But what concerns many scientists is that criticism of China may jeopardize future collaborations with Chinese science. If you really want the international community to work together to characterize potential pathogens, have a surveillance system that works, you cannot do it without China. If China says we're out, then you do not have a global surveillance system. So you might, everybody might as well go home and wait for the next pandemic. So I, I do think it's quite important to have China 
paddling in the same canoe in the same direction. After a year in which four million people have died of COVID, we still do not know for certain how it started. And we may never know. What we do know, however, is that the collection and testing of potentially pathogenic, dangerous viruses is still going on. I think we need to have a much larger public discussion about the sorts of research um, we're willing to see go ahead, about the sorts of risks we as a society are willing to, uh, to take, because these questions are much bigger than just individual scientists and their experiments. They involve all of us. And so there needs to be a much more democratic and open process for weighing the risks and benefits and for making the decisions about whether these particular kinds of experiments should go ahead. This category of research, gain-of-function research, is not needed for, does not contribute to, and to date has not contributed to development of drugs and vaccines. This research also does not prevent pandemics. We have to draw some lines. Now, a lot of scientists don't like this idea, and I understand that, but I'm simply proposing that we have a serious conversation about whether we should be drawing red lines. Red lines are places past which we do not go. It might be, for example, that we do not create viruses that do not exist in nature, which have both unusual virulence and unusual transmissibility. To me, that's something that we should not do. It, it, it can't be justified. That's it, guys. In response to the program, the Chinese government said they find the allegations completely groundless and unacceptable. Well, I hope you uh, found that of interest. Um, I'll hand back to... I'd like to say something if no one else is going to go. Go for it, yeah. All right. I just want to say that I think this is propaganda. I think there's three types of people in the world right now when it comes to the people. There are those who are terrified of COVID. There are those who are completely the opposite, who have nothing to fear from COVID. And then there are some who are in between. They're trying to figure out, is there really something I need to worry about or is there not? And I think this is propaganda aimed at those, uh, those latter people who haven't really decided yet. This makes them believe that, yeah, there really is something out there I should be terrified of. Maybe I'm going to get the vaccine now and start wearing a mask. But I do not believe there that. is. That's all I well, want to say. You're right, because this was filmed when we were on Variant 2, Beta. And by the time it was broadcast, we were on Delta. And you're right that the latterly, uh, the variants more recent, have not been so deadly or pathogenic or capable of killing people. Um, and Omicron... Uh, is not something that you should take into account as being related to this video, because by all means, it is the most mild variant we have so far seen. Um, so you're absolutely right there, Joseph. But what you're absolutely wrong, um, and I believe strongly, and I'll take the responsibility for it, is that this is not propaganda. This is a Channel 4 documentary that Channel 4 are not part of the Trusted News in Initiative, so they are not fettered or constrained or censored by a lot of the same authorities that the BBC and other networks are, Channel 4 have already won multiple awards for this, and every single scientist and every single person that spoke in it 
had to provide every piece of evidence because two of the speakers in that were the authors of the book Viral. They were Alina Chan and Lord Matt Ridley, who probably before you entered the room um, were uh, on the British Parliament uh, floor or remotely on the floor today answering questions to the British government with hand on heart and in a court of law effectively and I strongly believe that they have absolutely no motive, particularly as Alina Chan is a, a Chinese-American scientist, to have made any propaganda. But I think at the time this initially went out, it was very relevant. And I still think the authenticity of describing some of the things that happened is also incredibly relevant. And whilst it not may, may not be full and thorough, because every day we find out more things, I do think it's a very interesting educational non-propaganda account. That's my personal opinion. I think if it wasn't propaganda, then they would have, would have made a point of mentioning how the numbers have been fudged, how hospitals were receiving extra funding for saying that they've got people in there with COVID, etc. Like, it's all propaganda. There is no genuine news left, I don't believe. It's all propaganda. Okay, so this is Channel 4's documentary entitled where did COVID come from? There are thousands more on were numbers manipulated? Are the stats right? Are they deadly? Blah, blah, blah. This is very, very targeted niche documentary. But if you go onto Channel 4's website for On Demand or go to YouTube, you will find they've done loads of documentaries on those other topics. Miss Money Penny, do you have any connections or no? Anybody in Boston that can tell us what's going on with Charles Lieber's trial? Um, how is that connected to this? <laughs> no, sorry, I don't. Well, I think I'm in England. And well, I, when you, I, no, when I know you were, of him, but we were saying the stuff. search for the origin. I mean, he is the origin in many respects. I'm just, just a little English girl, unfortunately, Stacey. Sadly, oh. no. <laughs> okay. Uh, anybody in the stage audience that's what i'm really looking for i mean because you know we we're keep we're being kept from all the information and that's a real source of what happened if people really you know can get the information of what's coming out of his court trial so um i'd like to chat here um, can you someone explain who he is michael can you hang on two seconds we want to get kyle just he's joined Actually, the stage fairly recently michael, michael, kyle, go michael ahead. can continue the stream of thought oh, and okay, then not okay. no i just wanted to ask uh, Jason, who, can who close he was mic, please? Thank Money, you. Penny, sorry i just wanted to ask the lady who mentioned charles like who is he can you explain a bit about who that gentleman is please Charles Lieber is the Harvard scientist that was funded, I believe, and many others through uh, NHI and Fundy and uh, Fauci and Echo Alliance and all that, and and start is did a, a major work in Wuhan. Yeah. Years. Okay. And uh, I got it. I just got it. Go, just duck, duck, go. Him. <laughs> okay. Sorry. No okay. Come um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so. There are some things uh, that are very interesting about this pandemic, um, and I'm not a scientist. I've been doing my research as much as possible. Um, it the Omicron variant uh, was not what was the vaccine was designed for. So even though it may seem um, less severe to scientists, scientists and spreads faster. Um, elderly and diabetic and, and very susceptible people 
um, it, it could uh, impact them much differently than a healthy person, right? Um, uh, to my knowledge, the vaccine was not uh, designed for this specific um, spike protein. It's kind of different, but um, so I do wanna just like say that for very susceptible weak people, um, this is something we should care about them um, in all of this. Um, I'm not going to say whether or not it was a lab leak or if it uh, was zoonic. Um, but the thing is, is that one thing that hasn't been discussed and is very, very interesting is um, the timeline from like, um, so there is a Vice documentary with, uh, with a kid that um, was actually recording in China and trying to like spread the word of what was going on in China. Um, and I'm not too exactly sure on what date he was um, going to the wet market and taking video and videoing the hospital. And, and, and um, you know, like a lot of people have died. Um, so like, let's keep that into consideration. So I do think that there is, is something fishy going on as to why everyone's uh, arguing about masks, arguing about vaccines, but nobody is asking, okay, why was it allowed to spread so willy-nilly around the world, right? Like, if if it even if it was originated from nature um, and the uh, Chinese Communist Party knew about it, um, and why were there so many people traveling around the world um, from Chinese airports, uh, you know, uh, even if like the world health organization, okay. So they, they may have some political, uh, stuff that they got to deal with as well as the science and, um, and everything like that. But one thing that just strikes me is how easy we forget. Um, and then we get, uh, so, um, focused on things that people are arguing about right and that comes a lot from media sources um so let's let's just say that it is a virus that is killing people um let's assume that they like that wearing a mask is going to protect another person from getting sick let's say that vaccines are going to protect elderly and weak susceptible people all right why was it allowed to spread along across the world? Um, why wasn't the world first informed when um, people knew about it? Um, why were people still allowed to travel and spread it? Um, the, this is something very important, I think, uh, that instead of arguing about um, you know manufactured arguments um, like uh, where did it originate from? um mask no mask vaccine no vaccine whatever right focus on peer-reviewed scientific journals there okay and and do the research don't just google something or watch a newscast and then take a reporter's opinion about a scientific um peer-reviewed uh article and learn how to tell if uh, there is, uh, a, it, like, if that scientific research that you're looking into has been peer reviewed. So scientists disagree all the time.
um, they don't always come to unanimous decisions. But let's just go back here before we start arguing and ask, why was it allowed to spread all across the world when people knew that this was a virus that was causing deaths to susceptible people? Why was it so easily allowed to spread around the world? Great questions, Kyle, and some very perceptive recommendations. I totally stand by the point that absolutely everybody who is really interested in getting the truth should look at peer-reviewed publications. However, unfortunately, the first part of this program, when it first started, this show on Clubhouse, gave a live interview from the British government to people like the executive editor of The Lancet, Richard Horton, who was openly exposed as not having given a lot of information that would have been pertinent to help us stop all those things that you're talking about more quickly. And he held back research that would have allowed us to have okay, stopped but, a lot of people where dying. Where did it originate from? What country did it originate uh, I'm not sure that's the question. Sorry, what I'm just describing what happened on the question. Kyle, can you just allow me two seconds? I just want to say that not every journal can be 100% trusted, as we found out from the Lancet's editor, and therefore do make sure you get more than one independent piece of evidence because it's so complicated. It's very difficult to know who's telling the truth. And you're absolutely right there, Kyle. Um, unfortunately, we could do three shows on all the questions you've asked, Kyle, and we're going to be uh, closing just this one question. Too. I just asked one question. Okay. What country did it originate from? Why wasn't the world informed and why were people so willingly able to travel? And okay, so in my humble opinion, it originated from China, funded by America, because America knew it was too dangerous to do those sorts of experiments on American soil, which we openly have a recording of um, uh, EcoHealth Alliance uh, Danzak saying exactly that, and instructed by Fauci, whose emails confirm that, and therefore it originated in China, but was supportively paid for and funded all the way through by the United States. Money penny. And so yes. the, 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 because it crippled economies around the world, right? Isn't that advantageous for? Hey, money penny. Hi, I make your pop. Hi, it's make your pop. I got that information you need. Um, I'm going to send it to you. Um, where it originated, I have the declassified government documents. It says the Office of Director of National Intelligence, National Intelligence Council. I have the updated assessment on the COVID-19 where it originates. And I got that um, declassified information. If wow, you want brilliant. Money Penny, I'm definitely going to give it to you because I know you're the person to definitely give this info to. Does it, does it follow the line of the hours video we've just watched, which tells us the same, or is it slightly contradictory? Um, I, I don't know which that one is, but this one has every detail you need on how it got um, where it did and the experiments and everybody involved naming specific people like literally from detail to detail. Great. Well, that is what this video said, but I will be increasingly very interested at looking at that now to see how it curtails and how it uh, follows the same story, if indeed it does. Brilliant, make it pop. That's fantastic. I'm going to go to Dante because she's been flashing madly.
<laughs> yes, I have. Um, real, real quick, uh, make it pop. If you could back channel me that uh, information, that would be uh, very helpful for me as well. I definitely would like to take a look at that. So thank you for that. Um, I'm not sure who stage this is, but uh, I do appreciate you guys allowing me to come on here and say my piece. Um, I was just listening in, and um, you know, uh, I'm just I'm just gonna uh, say my opinion here. I guess you can say so. You know. Uh, take the meat, spit out the bones. Um, but, uh, in my, and from, you know, everything that's been going on, uh, you know, obviously it happened, it, uh, started in China, just like Money Penny was saying, and obviously it was funded by, you know, Fauci and all those people. Um, and the reason, um, I'm trying to answer Kyle's question, the reason why, um, it wasn't so, uh, jumped on, I guess you can say, is because, you know, there's, there's an agenda, obviously. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, if you guys consider it conspiracy theory or whatever you guys want to call it, that's, that's fine. But obviously, um, you know, there's an agenda from the higher-ups in government. And um, the reason why I want to read that document, Make It Pop, is because, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, trusted news sources, right, trusted information. Well, let's, 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 use our common sense brain real quick. If the government is the one that's funding this stuff, how credible is their information? Right. So like I said, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but that that's just my opinion on the matter. And, um, you know, you do have to check multiple sources and come to the most conclusive argument. And uh, I, I think that's what uh, is happening here today, which is really great. But uh, I just, I just want to say that. So thank you for allowing me to come on the stage and uh, I'm going to be landing my yeah, that source, that paper, it doesn't come from any reporter, from any um, news or whatever it is. Uh, like it says, straight from the main source, from the national intelligence, um, when it comes from the main government. So that is um, definitely um, PDF declassified information that is not out there because it has not been released at all. And, it's, and it's, it hasn't been out there. So I definitely, like it says, I check, check my resources. I go down the rabbit hole and completely check where the main resource come from. This has not been um, out anywhere. So I, I did definitely check. So this is definitely some legit stuff. So I definitely uh, back channeled it to you, uh, Money Penny, and same thing with Dante. So, you know, and, and I definitely trust Money Penny will definitely um, do the right thing when it comes to this information. So it, it is like a lot of deep stuff that goes in. And the reason that they're doing this trend um, humanism is because, like it says, there's a lot of money owed. And each person that the government has, you know, you are basically each of your social security numbers are sold and there's money that's being put somewhere else. So basically, once you get these backs inside your body, like it says, you know, being human, they cannot patent human. So when you go into this trend on hu humanism and once you take this experimental drug and you give consent you're automatically the government's property. So they're gonna go ahead and seize a set, a seize every person, you know, because now you're gonna be the government's property. So that's when it comes into the martial law, it will definitely, they will have the right and effect because you took it, it's, it's inside your body. So anytime they wanna come in, you know, inside your houses or do whatever they want to, because they do have right to seize in a set property that is the government because you fully gave consent to this being vaxxed. So when you're rights, and then once you do that, all these rights that you have in the constitution will not affect you because now you are the government's property because you took this back as 
an experimental drug that you gave for your full consent. So that's the reason what it is. So when it comes into this martial law, they're definitely going to be going into that's why they're doing what they're doing, because they have right to seize and assess any type of property because you're the government's property. You're marked and branded. And that's what it is. It's all about that. So, you know, yeah, right, right. make it pop. Let me just close Mike's a sec just very quickly. We're coming to the sort of three, four hour mark. Um, oh, wow, what a whopping room. But we've got a guy on stage who does the most amazing resets. And he's promised me this one's going to be a drop the mic boom. So we're just going to turn to Eli because so many new people are in the room. Eli is now going to surprise, entertain. I'm putting you under pressure here, Eli, to do the best reset we have ever had of any room. Hello, everybody. How are you all doing? Oh, yeah. I hope you all are enjoying the room, right? Welcome to the preservation of the human race. This In this club, we are here to explore the ideas and concepts that will guide the preservation of the human race within the next thousand plus years. It's all about conversation. So one thing, most importantly, if you are not following the club, go ahead and follow the club so that whenever we open rooms in the hallway, you'll be notified. As usual, don't forget to follow Money Penny. Yeah, she's the host on your left. You know, don't forget to give her a follow. She brings us conversation on the daily so that we would know what is going on so that we can make a decision. And don't forget your co-moderators. Angela is here. Amanda left a while ago, ladies and gentlemen. And also, last but not the least, is that you also give the followers who are on the stage, who are asking questions. Please, the speakers, they are doing their best. Give them a follow. If anything they said resonates with you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the preservation of human race. This is how we do it. It's pink party, baby. Let's invite five people into the room. How do we do that? It's a plus sign that comes before the microphone. Invite a couple of people into the room. Please don't hesitate. Do so. This is how you support the room. And that's how everybody become part of the conversation because a lot of information is being shared in this room. And for me, it was jaw dropping for me. So ladies and gentlemen, once again, welcome to the preservation of human race. We are happy to have you. My name is Eli. If you feel inclined, give me a follow. Thank you very much, Wani Penny and the co-moderators and the speakers on stage. Thank you very much for all you do. And the listeners, of course, we appreciate you. We'll see you later on. Back to you, Wani Penny. It's all yours. My name is Eli, Mr. Rat ta 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 I'm done speaking. Drop the mic, close the mic. Thank you very much. Um, if everybody on stage could do a little mic applause, just flash your mic for Eli. Thank you for that, guys and girls. Now, um, just in terms of the timing, um, I am very depleted after several hours because I unfortunately have this long COVID, so I've got a splitting migraine. I haven't eaten and need to dehydrate. Um, Michael just told me that we have Dr. Pierre Corey um, from FLCCC um, talking on an important topic. Uh, that presumably started about five minutes ago. Can I just check, is that being broadcast? Do I need to move people into that room because they will be 
challenged as to which room to go into or can I carry on? Angela and Michael, could you give me some advice? Uh, somebody told me and I don't know. That's my answer. So. Angela, do you know any more? No. I mean, we can just carry on as long as somebody... I'm here and okay. I just looked it up. I can post the link. It doesn't look like anybody's opened the room just yet, but uh, Karen and Fran and Gloria are going to be streaming that in the COVID special events room in just a few minutes. I'm uh, glad you okay. have the link because I, my link, I can't copy it for some reason on my phone. Otherwise, I would have sent it to you, Money Penny. Okay. So basically, I'd like to say take a step back, but we'll keep the room going. Uh, thank you. Angela has now put the link at the top because people may want to move to that room. We may well close this one down because we know it's a similar audience and you guys will be interested in both. But um, make it pop. Uh, Angela and Eli are my mods here. Could I just hand over to you briefly? Angela, you sound as though you're in a car. Make it pop. And Eli, would you be able to just take some more questions from the audience and keep the chat going for a few minutes? Um, Definitely. Yep. Sure. Yep. Can I ask a quick question? If we're taking questions, this is. Sure, go ahead. Hi. Um, so the book that was up, you had the link up. Um, I wasn't here for that, but I just downloaded it on my Audible. Like, has somebody already read that that's in the room? And was it a great book? Yes, it's my Bible, Sally. Hi again. It's nice true. to see you. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> How are you, Money Penny? Oh, we're following each other around. Yes, People will talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so right. I got this okay. book on advance order because um, I knew a little bit about it coming out. And the guy who's the um, British journalist, the co-author, Matt Ridley, um, he's very well connected in the same sort of journalist circles that I've moved in. Um, so I put, I got on a waiting list and got it quick. Um, and it is a great read. Um, and the other co-author, Alina Chan, who is a Chinese scientist, um, with incredible knowledge and understanding of everything and anything. Um, she was also in the British parliament today, which actually live from Boston on a, on a live feed, um, being interviewed and giving information to the British parliament um, on her opinions about things that have gone wrong, things that have been covered up, all the rest of it. And most of that insight I found out from this book, which only came out probably 10 days or so ago. Um, but I would, I would really urge people to get it. As you know, it's in an audible, audio Kindle version, hardback, paperback even, I think, soon. So, yeah, absolutely. Good. Okay, good. I just downloaded it, so I'm going to start reading it tomorrow morning on my, on my walk. So thank you for that. No problem. Back to Eli. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so as Bob Costa, if you have anything to say, go ahead and, you know, um, and speak or ask a question. Take it away. Um, hi, uh, this is uh, Alexa. Um, I, I was going to comment on one of um, one of the members from the uh, on the stage mentioned about the, there are different, well, he said three types of people regarding these, this uh, current pandemic. Actually, I think there are about three or four. There's 
those that are afraid of the COVID and getting the COVID. Then there are those of us who are the skeptics. And then there are those who really do know what's going on. Um, you know, the, the war games that they've played in practice over the previous years and how to um, get this pandemic spread all over the world. And then there's the other kind that's obviously that's profiting from all of this, um, pharmaceuticals and et cetera, for those who uh, are invested in the pharmaceutical uh, uh, companies and manufacturers such as Bill Gates um, and others like that. Um, so, yeah, so there, there are, I would say about four, at least four types of people in regarding this um, pandemic. So that's my input on that for now. Um, I yield my mic. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate you so much for that. Um, who else have a question or have a statement or an add-on or want to refute anything that has been said in the room, please take it our way. And if you are at the bottom, uh, please, you want to be part of the conversation, raise your hand and we will be glad to bring you up. Thank you. Yeah, again, I, like, I just, um, I'm just curious, like, like, cause if we look at it in a, sorry, I interrupted. Oh, I, I was going to ask about that book um, that uh, Money Penny and um, I didn't catch her name. That we're just talking about the book. I'm curious about what book are they talking about? So it's a book simply called Viral. Um, it's available on Amazon.com and Amazon.co.uk. It is authored by Alina Chan and Matt Ridley. Um, we did have it posted at the top, but we've obviously switched now to the room in which Pierre Corey is speaking, who's a, a really interesting uh, doctor. But if you go into any search engine and just put viral, the book, or viral book, Alina Chan, Matt Ridley, COVID, origin, any of those words in pretty much any permutation, hopefully you'll get lots of links where you could find it and get it sent to you. Okay, thanks for that. Um, first of all, like, yeah, Alina Chan, uh, Dr. Alina Chan is no slouch of a scientific researcher. Um, I have done some research on, on this person. Um, and the, um, it is very interesting that, that she was actually uh, presenting in front of a, um, a government. So um, geopolitically, um, speaking um you know it it is very quite interesting as well like um it, when someone actually mentioned about if you take a experimental vaccine you're the property of the government um i just would like to remind people that uh there are different legal systems all around the world um not every country follows the same legal system um, but what is interesting is to look at things through a geopolitical lens as well. Um, and, and this is why I asked the question earlier. And, you know, I find that it is very good to ask questions um, and not to jump to conclusions. 
Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that about anyone. I'm just saying it about like, I, I'm going to keep on bringing people into these rooms so they open their minds. Um, and in the way that I'm going to be able to do that is to be asking questions. And so the reason why I ask where it originated from is because um, it's quite interesting. There are a lot of people boycotting the Olympics, a lot of people not. Um, reminds me of 1980 um, Olympics. Uh, there are some patterns that are taking shape. There are some human rights violations um, and atrocities, um, especially from that government with the Uyghur people, the Tibetans, uh, Hong Kong, um, all of this stuff. But there are other governments that have been um, guilty of um, incredible atrocities as well. Um, so it still um, phases my mind, like this science is very, very important. But um, if we were to look at um, what is the benefit of allowing it, uh, allowing travelers to leave the country um, once already uh, had known that there is a virus within that, like it, it goes against all of the, the the ways that we were taught to contain uh, a viral outbreak right if um if a country were to all of a sudden okay here's a virus lots of people are going to the hospital lots of people are dying um why let travelers then travel all Um, just uh, sort of off the topic, but something you mentioned uh, about boycotts of the up-and-coming Olympics. I understand there are diplomatic uh, boycotts, but not actually uh, countries that are boycotting. But if I can, st if you want to stand me in correction. Oh no, no, you're absolutely. So it is interesting, isn't it? It kind of seems like child's play can, considering what we're talking about. So like, yeah, not sending diplomats um, to the Olympics and pretending that that is uh, um, actually doing something. Well, there's like, um, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative and all this other stuff. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's about time that we, uh, you know, question our own governments as well. Um, why sit back and see what happened to Hong Kong um, and, and let that just happen and then sit back and call genocide to the Uyghurs, uh, sit back and let that happen. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so, yeah, the, 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 it was very good. Anyone else have um, an, any um, add-on or question or submissions that they want to make to the room or have anything, all things um, pandemic or vaccine or COVID they want to bring to our attention? Please take it away. It's popcorn style. This is Angela. I keep checking and the room, it's not open yet. So I don't know if there's a problem, but I'll let you. Angela, you're still going?
Come on. Okay, the room just opened. So if you want to join the FLCC <laughs> Weekly Update with Corey, click on the link at the top of the page, and we'll see you in the room. Yes, Sarah, I'm here. Hello. <laughs> Okay, guys, so thank you for joining the room that I originally started a few hours ago. Zara, where the hell were you? You always turn up right at the end. Look, he's just disappeared now. How dare he? Guys, I really um, respect you giving me your precious time. Thank you so much for being with us. I hope you found it of interest. Please uh, follow me and the Moneypenny Media Club, which we are going to be using intensively to break news. Um, and I'd like help with that from anybody who's good at researching typing, uh, data analyzing. Um, if you're up for it, please send me a message and join the club. Um, and thank you particularly to the other mods. Please click on the button at the top and go to the next room to get the update from some very powerful doctors and specialists. So uh, Eli, make it pop. Uh, Michael, Alexa, everyone on the stage, thank you. We will be closing the room in five seconds. Get ready, guys. Five, four, three, two, one. Woo! Here, I'm bringing them out front. And by doing so, you have the opportunity to move through them faster. Because as you move through them, All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's all move to the next room. The link is up there. Let's go. Waiting for everybody to click on the link above. We are transitioning to a new room. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are transitioning to the new room. The room, the link to the new room is up there, up there above my board head. Click on that link to take you to the new room. Let's go. We are waiting to the last person. And those of you that the link is not working, um, I'll be moving to that room too. If you feel inclined, you can give me a follow. I'll be in the next room so they can see me in the hallway. Thank you very much for being here. We appreciate you so much for being part of the conversation. And it's going to be a live transmission. So waiting, I'm waiting till everybody leaves the room. Conversation here is over. We are all transitioning into the next room, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for being here. We appreciate you. We appreciate you so much. And, and the room ends. In five, four, three, two, 
one. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you in the next room.